that still going? It's bloody hot. It's a Yeti, mate. That's unreal. It's all about the Yeti. Mine was cold, chilled <laughs> in that plastic cup within 10 minutes because it's, it's probably minus this, three at the moment. Yeah, it's probably this breeze. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it be in the New South Wales Ranges, Riverside in the Northern Territory, or above treeline in New Zealand or Colorado, or in the tundra of Alaska, Hunting Camp is where the best stories are shared. Join me as I bring some of these stories to you, along with tips and techniques from some of the known and not so well-known hunters of Australia and around the world. Welcome to Hunting Camp Down Under. That fire is good. It's a bit better than the last night. At least the wind's pushing the smoke the right direction. <laughs> that was funny watching you. Oh, that burnt the crap out of my eyes, I must admit. Yeah, it was pretty rough. Oh. Hi guys, welcome to the hunting camp down under. We are sitting in the Victorian high country with uh, Josh Rogers. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for having me. No, mate. Thank you for having me, your buddy. We kind of threw this one together a couple of months ago. I, uh, I hit Josh up to do a podcast with us and uh, talk a bit of samba hunting. And he said, well, I'm not doing it over the phone. How about you come down for a hunt? So here we are, a couple months later. And, uh, mate, I've got to say, I've, I certainly have a newfound awe. Oh, there's a spark off the fire. Um, definitely got a newfound respect for you guys, Sam Hunt, mate. This is this has been an awesome couple of days. Yeah, no, and that's what I was hoping. We got, we got pretty lucky there with the weather, so we had a bit of a, a break in the weather. So the forecast was looking good all week. But like I said, I've had... Um, couple different plans in case the weather did happen to change at last minute but what we're looking for was the clear skies a bit of sunshine and and obviously no fog and we've managed to get that so as you see the Victorian higher country's got got a lot to offer mate it's absolutely beautiful I've as I said I've probably been to Melbourne twice mate and I think I came down for the deer show early in the year and other than that mate I've never been here so to be able to come here and yeah grab the bow and go for a walk we're Bill's over here taking photos. He doesn't want a mic. He's uh, doesn't like talking. He reckons, but um, he's here taking photos of us at the fire. But you know, just to to be here and you know, obviously we've read so many magazines and listened to so many things over the years. It's um, it's good to finally be here. And I must admit, it's you know where we were yesterday and today. It's you know very different country to sort of probably what I expected. Um, really steep, like. You know, like well, sort of goat country. <laughs> you know, if anyone's travelled, it's uh, you know goat and sheep country. But these salmon deer seem to absolutely love it. Yeah, so I probably chucked in the deep down there by taking you into the, the <laughs> hardest country we probably got to hunt. So who's testing me out? Yeah, oh, and it's the experience really. Nah, it's so been unreal. could have taken you down somewhere onto some farm fringe, and potentially you might have seen half a dozen or a dozen deer in the morning, and the same again in the evening, but. Yeah, it's more the experience of this up here, so... Definitely. Before we jump down too much, mate, um, yeah, give us your background story. Obviously, you've had a few of my podcasts, mate, but I'd love to know, you know, who everybody is and, um, you know, how you obviously come into this kind of obsession, I suppose you've got, or disease, as you call it. But um, where did it all start for you, mate? Step us through um, the early years. Yeah, so I'm one of the fortunate few that is actually just born into it, so don't know any different just hunting's in my blood my my dad my brothers my uncles my cousins we've 
we've all been involved in salmon hunting at some stage or another. My my uncle was um, a hound hunter for a long time. Dad hound hunted for as long. Delved in a little bit of that myself at different times. Uh, there's a fair bit of politics around some of the hound hunting scene, but it's good. You'll enjoy that, and uh, for me, that that's where it all began. Pretty much a one species wander, so all <laughs> I know is Sambadia. But the more, the more I think I know, the more I realise I need to learn more. Yeah, and it's just a passion, really. I just I love being in the bush. Don't need to be killing things to be enjoying it. So that's where the photography for me comes into it. So Josh has been walking these hills for the last couple of days. Of obviously I'm carrying the bow, and um, Bill's been carrying the rifle, and and no joke. Josh is just walking around with the camera when he decides to get it out. I think he just likes, I call him Rocket, he's his new nickname. He just wants to be about 50 yards ahead of me everywhere we go. I can't keep up, but mate, looking back, um, you obviously said you, you went into hound hunting. Was that the first, that was the first initiation to, to Samba hunting or um, was it different stages? Yeah, no, nah, so there certainly was some other stages. So stepping back into it, I, I shot my first deer, Samba deer with a rifle when I was 13. Uh, we were predominantly stalking at that stage, so hound hunting wasn't really a part of the scene when I was younger. When I was about 15, we decided to take up archery, which was a little bit different, but Dad was doing it, so I figured I'd do it. Um, back then, release aids and things like that, they weren't really, they were around, but I was trying to fight against the machine there, <laughs> thinking that me with my cowed hide finger tab and finger shooting a, a compound bow was the bee's knees and I was fortunate enough when I was 15 to, to get in a position and and arrow a, a sand behind at about nine metres so that was really cutting my teeth on on the archery but I did love archery at that age because it gave me independence from dad quite often with the rifle shooting I had to be side by side with him and the archery gave me that opportunity to get away and do my own thing. Yeah. Uh, so when I wasn't hunting deer, we, we, we had a local population of goats down in sort of smack bang in the middle of Victoria. So we spent a bit of time hunting them. There were some deer kicking around there too. They weren't in big numbers, but we'd see the odd one. So there were, uh, that was obviously tantalising, but the goats took priority for me because I was a young guy and obviously I wanted to be trying to target the biggest billy I could find in the mob. But we got a few goats out of there and evolution took over and kept shooting the bow and I was struggling with the cost of archery as a, as a 15 year old I wasn't working um, I was running eastern alloy arrows and rib tech broadheads and they were about 15 bucks a pop and I was slinging them around left right <laughs> and center so yeah as we did lost plenty of them and, and I was struggling to keep up with demand and uh, as I as I got closer to 18 I, I had a couple near misses on on really nice amber stags and for me as a as a young guy I was driven by results and decided to give the bow away and pick up a rifle and get my license and then off I went there almost immediately I, I got involved in the hound hunting scene because it was obviously something that my family had a history in and yeah I loved it I love dogs I love being up in the bush I love hearing the, the sound of the dogs seen seen the change in even the if they are running the wrong way 
Sorry, mate. Even if they are running the wrong way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So if you if you're quick enough through the bush, though, you can keep up with them at different times. So yeah. I don't know how you do it in this country we're in now. That's yeah. crazy. Oh, you, you get bush fit. I think we had that conversation before. You don't need to be ripped to be able to walk through the bush. Nah. So it's all about getting that muscle memory in the legs. And and it's a different level of training, really, to, to a sports people or, or yeah. footballers and along those lines. Um, so, yeah, I managed to chase the dogs around for a little while. Had a lot of success there. Shot some really nice stags at different times. And then... As I said earlier, there's a little bit of politics there. It's everybody thinks they've got the best dogs. Everybody's shooting more deer than the next guys. There's guys that are are trying to number crunch, so they're just shooting deer just to say that they shot X amount on the weekend and things like that. And I didn't really like that. I like the old school hunting where it was team orientated and and the guys all got in, celebrated the successes together and and carried carried the meat out and and really got involved together it was a group effort yeah that's what i loved about it and moving forward i decided that i'd much prefer to get involved in the stalking scene again and and primarily the backcountry stuff which to be honest i was a little bit behind the eight ball with that there was guys that were already doing it and um they they experienced the successes that come with that but i still enjoyed it I'm a bit of a lone wolf at times, so I like spending time in the bush by myself. I'm just as happy to share it with other people. Um, but yeah, I spent oh, weeks and months and years in the bush just trancing around by myself yeah. to the point where my wife had concerns and, and brought me uh, PLB, so that was a little bit of a safety clause for her if she wanted if she wanted me to be safe if i was there and by carrying that it put her mind at ease and yeah yeah the reality is i was doing a lot of kilometers so and this is pretty like you know we talk backcountry and people hear it about you know over the states and all that kind of stuff blokes in the backcountry but where I, what i found is you know how quickly just even climate change is like we haven't even had a weather front come through but you can literally just in within 10 minutes you're you're freezing like you're really really cold so you can probably see, I can probably see your your wife's sort of concern there about being out on your own for for lengths of time, and you know you're you're minimalistic, so you're trying to you know sort of push the extremes all the time. Um, where did it sort of really kick off that you sort of dropped? I guess the other forms, like you dropped the hounds, are you still very interested in them? I'm not saying that you're not, but what was that major change for you? What moment did that happen? Yeah, so that was. I, I, I'm very passionate about hunting and I, I enjoy my time up the bush and I was finding myself getting dragged into other people's dramas. So for me, I was getting too caught up in trying to deal with other people's rubbish. So I, I was no longer enjoying my time up the bush just because of those distractions and figured that if I wasn't happy with some of the company that I was sharing at times, then I might as well just branch out and do my own thing and sure. just... I can control who's there then, and and for me, the the passion started to come back into it. Yeah. And I still do hound hunt, and and I love the sport, and the guys do really well with it. I just, for me, it's a matter of just making sure that I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and that it's important because there's 
it's very, very easy to get dragged into that rabbit hole of he said, she said, yeah. and standing up for the people that you believe in. and Kind of like all forms of every sport, I oh, suppose. It is. It's, that. it's that, yeah, absolutely. So it's no different to sporting cultures or anything like that. Yeah. One club might dislike the next club and a, a player might go from one team to another and then all of a sudden that causes grievances yeah. on the field and it's much the same in the hunting community. So, um, yeah, not, I don't want to delve delve too deeply into that because it's not what I'm about I, I just I really want to be promoting hunting and more so just sharing my experiences and hoping that it can generate a bit of interest from other people so yeah I've noticed like I mean we've we've spent a couple of days together now where um we're sort of day two end of day two we're sitting around the fire right now and um you know what, what I've sort of noticed you know just listening to you walk around and and your your observation is incredible, and I, I don't mean to put you on the. I'm going to put you on the spot with plenty of things, but your observation of walking in the bush has that purely just come from time time spent in the bush, or have you sort of taken that time in the bush to another level and and made yourself be more observant? Yeah, uh, yeah, good question. But I don't think that I'm doing anything any different to anybody else. I I am passionate about it, and, and I do try to learn something every time I'm in the bush. Yep. So. Whether that's an example was today while I had cut around after after we had spooked a couple animals out of an area and I hadn't I didn't really know it so I wanted to drop out in there, but just finding deer beds and looking for wallows or scrapes or anything like that that could potentially help you in the future. So yeah. you guys were sitting up high and I had the opportunity to point out a couple beds that they're they're, they're important in in particularly in that aspect because you could be glassing from up there and for me to stand down there give you a little bit of a wave and then put the hands up to the head like I'm sleeping just so you guys know there's a couple yeah. beds there yeah. that 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 all then just gives you that little bit of an edge next time you know that yep. Samba can be challenging in where they sleep they they don't always sleep in the open but these were a couple semi-open beds where you could be comfortable in going up there and glassing and knowing look there's two beds there so I'm just going to look at the two beds and then start scouting around from there so yeah to answer I sort of went away from there there but to answer your question I don't think that I'm doing anything more than anyone else but I do believe that I want to better my own knowledge every time I'm in the bush so yeah, that's sure. just branching out a little bit just dropping down a ridge or looking for a wallow or identifying some beds and and that's that's what drives me so it's always just looking for that next little bit you made a comment when we uh when we were driving up there um a couple of nights ago and i was good for a couple of hours and i ended up getting crook <laughs> got, got Carsey because she's a pretty crazy road and I, I can't remember last time i was in the back seat but it's something else to laugh at but um you made a comment earlier that you know you, you can't actually remember a week that you haven't spent some time looking at deer yeah. um i mean that that's one impressive and probably your wife just thinks you're mad but um what drives that in a way that you don't get sick of them like i mean I, i've had interests where i was like yeah hey, i couldn't be bothered anymore like what how does that not disappear i i think that's that passion so for me i didn't play sports in adulthood or anything like that there's times where i wished i had played afl more as a, as an adult I wasn't real good at it as a junior, so I figured I wouldn't have been very good as an adult. So yeah. for me, I wanted something that I could do that I, I don't want or need to stand out, but something that I could 
be comfortable in myself knowing that I can do successfully. Yeah. Uh, so that that's probably the drive. You're spot on in that my wife does think that I'm mad. She doesn't understand it. She's not a hunter, but but she's considerate and, and she doesn't mind that I'm spending time in the bush chasing deer around with a camera or with my bow or with a rifle. Uh, for her, yeah, she's happy for that, provided it's not interfering with family time. Yeah, yeah, that's important. So I try to capitalise a little bit on where I'm working and just going for a walk after work somewhere between home. So... I'm fortunate that where I live, I'm, I'm on one of the edges of the Samba territory, so there's deer potentially 2Ks from home. I've got friends with farms that are nearby that have them, and yeah, there's plenty of opportunity on the drive home to find a reason just to jump out the car and go for a walk just through yeah. that. That main period in particular is, can't stress that enough, and that's it's often referred to as the Samba hour, and that's that last hour of daylight. If you yep. can be in an area where there is deer and you can get into a gully or something like that, you don't even have to walk far. Quite often where I'm taking photographs, I can hear cars in the background because they're so used to that traffic that it doesn't impact their behaviours. So for me, just grabbing the camera, going for a walk into a gully for 20 minutes, sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, capitalise on all those moments. It's yeah. not interfering with the family. And, yeah, go back to that question again. And realistically, through the peak periods of Samba, that I'm hunting the Samba throughout the year, there's, there's probably three to four nights or afternoons a week, including weekends. So, I don't know, the last three or four years, I've probably spent 150-plus days in the bush. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether... Obviously, through my social media platform on Instagram, I'm not sure people truly understand that. Although that I'm getting the photos, I am in the bush that much, and and I'm not letting you know about the moments that I'm not successful. <laughs> and believe me, there is plenty of them. But people are just seeing the moments that I am, and 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 that's great, and I'm happy to share that. So yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, we were obviously we've been a couple of days now. We uh, yesterday morning we we hiked out. You know, I think 12 k's from from the truck, and uh, got out there and, and pretty much, you know, sort of glassing, you know, more or less just drop camp and started glassing from a couple of vantage points that that Josh, you know, obviously knows quite well. And you know, I asked him this morning. I said, you know, how many deer have you pulled out of here? And he said, oh, I think three, including a friend's. And, and I was like, oh, okay, because when Josh talks about these spots, you know, it's, it's deer here. There's a bed there, and. You know, I think a lot of that come, it's definitely experiences that, you know, it's that 150 hours in the bush that, you know, allows you to, to very easily identify where you're going to find the animals. One thing I've really picked up from our conversations over the last few weeks and, and especially this weekend is, is your focus on feed and where the animals are likely to be due. You know, we walked in and you straight away said, there's not as much feed here as I thought there would be. Um how obviously it's critical but how critical is it in the way that you hunt yeah so it's not the be all and end all because you're not going to know what the feed situation's like unless you're out there yeah you can try predict it yeah and i suspected that this weekend was going to be challenging with the elevation so I, I had been out here three weeks ago and the feed was almost non-existent at the elevation that i was hoping that, to be seeing the deer yep 
So to verify that, I'd drop down a little bit further. And if you're not seeing them up high, you're best off dropping a bit lower and, and you will find them. And sure enough, they were a couple hundred metres lower down the ridges, mainly because that's where the feed was fresh. So, um, but to be successful, you probably need to take a step back and look at where people might fall over with this and it's understanding your area so yep. the best advice that i ever give anybody new when they question me on instagram or something like that is where where do i go or what do i do and the, the best thing that i can suggest is just learn an area really well you're better off knowing one spot exceptionally well than 20 spots bugger all so yep. and that's the weather that's the feed patterns that's the deer habits you'll never truly pattern these animals because they'll always challenge you in that so but understanding if if it's foggy in one spot where can you go where it's not foggy is it nearby is it what are the deer behaviors during rain events or windy events do you know where there's some quiet zones because that's where they'll be when it is windy then the, the feed is then secondary to that because the deer are capable of surviving in what i'm looking at prime feed samba are capable of living off other things that you're not just not identifying so and i don't pretend to know every single food source that they've got i can identify with the main ones and and they will just substitute their meals and, yeah. and a good example of that today was just looking at the deer the deer shit that we were yeah. coming across so when they're forming normal pallets like jelly beans then that's when they're just on a basic diet of woody plants and a little bit of grass here and there but they're not grazers they're browsers so they like a variety of meals or food sources across their meals every time they're out other than um, other species have a tendency to just be grazers so they'll just get out in paddocks and that's all they need that's all they want whereas samba even when they're on farm fringe they'll get their fill of grass but then they'll also browse their way back okay and get a little bit of woody bush or something like that in so is it. that a roughage just to like get their, their guts going is yeah. it something like that yeah i'd say so because they're generating so much so they've got to eat so much to be able to be yeah self-sustainable so for them it's obviously being um an undulate that they they have multiple stages of stomach so yeah. they'll go out and they'll eat their fill and then they'll step back off and lie down and chew their cud. So that's the period where they are regurgitating and just grinding away and then swallowing it again. And then the, the fines carry through to the next stage and the roughage comes back up again. So yep. no doubt at all that some of that rougher foliage helps with that. So Yeah. I mean, people might, you know, listen to this. My sort of question is like, oh, well, that's got, what's that got to do? This afternoon was a really, really good example. And, and I learned we went for a quick hour and a half before, on the way back to camp or way back to uh, to base camp tonight. Um, you know, you know, we're sort of going through and, you, you know, there was sign everywhere. And, and I said, I said, oh, look at all the sign. You're like, yeah, but, you know, you can tell when they've been here, when the feed was better, they're here because if you look at the, the shit they've been doing, that's not from this feed so that was really interesting to actually be able to pick just from those kind of signs was actually how long the deer had been here or when they were here um that kind of yeah that was quite intriguing yeah so that that was late summer there was still quite a bit of clover around there was certainly the wild raspberry was in full bloom and uh 
the dandelion stuff as well. They're they're a pretty big fan of them. So that high nutrient feed, so primarily that uh, clover and dandelion feed, that has a tendency to bind them up a bit. So okay. they're not they're not dropping pallets anymore. They're just dropping big, big solid, sort of, compressed. Yeah. Yeah, almost pig scat or even could be probably mistaken as wombat or something yeah, like that. But yeah, not did, something yeah. that you identify as deer because we all think that deer just drop out pallets like yep. jelly beans. So, yeah, that that was, you, you could pick it up and it's hard to gauge age of scat that's week old. Beyond that, you can't gauge it at all. Yeah. But knowing that the feed was not around because it was the tail end of summer and then we went through a prolonged period without rain yep. meant that it started having an impact on the feed even though the deer was still around and then today we see the following effect where the frosts have started kicking in so then the wild raspberry can't cope with that yep. so it's starting to die off there's a little bit of the fresh pick starting to come in but then we pushed around a little bit further almost more again. easterly and at that point the feed started drying out again yeah. as well so yep. Yeah. So we're obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, feed and that kind of stuff. If we take it right back to basics and if you sort of plan out your year using the feed and, and all, everything you know, um, for someone that's sort of like myself that hasn't hunted sandbird, but I'd say I've moved into a sandbird area, um, how does the year sort of plan out with you? Starting with January, move through the months and, and this could this could go for a little while, but move through the months as if what you would expect the deer we'll talk high country um what you expect the deer to go through over those months yep so we're talking deer but we're primarily talking sand Samba, deer. Sorry, so i'm yeah. not going to go down the path of other species because i don't really chase them when everyone's in fallow rut period i'm still in, on the samba bandwagon so january is one of the tougher months of the year so probably the highest percentage of car stags or velvet stags around. Yep. If you put the time in though, you will find hard stags because that pattern is breaking and not only is it breaking, it's starting to become more consistent across the years. But Sorry, I'm gonna give you another rabbit hole to you. The Samba don't have a strict season when they're dropping antlers, velvet and all that, do they? They have a rough no. guideline, but they're not, they're a little bit like chittle. They're a little bit all over the place. Yeah, so they, that's purely dictated by cycling hind. So if you've got a, a hind that cycles outside of that, yep. I've got, I'm not an expert on it, but I've got no doubt it's associated with date of birth. So if they're born okay. on a certain time, they're going to reach maturity in a certain time. That throws it out a little bit. You quite often can have some slight variances to that with drought or fire or when the animals are under duress, they might not cycle, but typically they will, or they will as soon as whatever it was that was stressing them allows them to then conceive again so with that 20 30 years ago they were almost textbooked in that they they were over the summer months they were in velvet just okay. forget about hunting them yep but if you look at, at the last 20 30 years we've had significant fires we've had significant drought so um good example of that was in 2007 2008 melbourne was down to its last melbourne the city was down to its last 20 odd days worth of drinking water supply. So that suggests that we oh, were in shit. a significant drought and that had a major impact on the deer at the time. That would have potentially been somewhat of the, the start of this shift. Yep. But the more deer you're getting born outside of those periods and the more deer you're witnessing in velvet at different stages of the year, 
they are all going to just continue to impact that. Yeah. So sooner or later, what used to be the norm, which was uh, spring, autumn, winter, and summer's out because they're in velvet, they, they are now, it's not so much. It's still, we've still got our peak periods, but you can find hard stags any time of the year. Yep, yep, you got a couple of curveballs. Yep. So going back onto the months of the year, January's very hot. It's also dealing with snakes, so if you've got any concerns about snakes, <laughs> yeah, it's a I'm good out. time to stay out of the I'm bush. Out. <laughs> Stuff that. <laughs> but it's also a good time to start scouting too. So if you're getting out into some areas that you you hunt consistently, then it's a good opportunity to see what stages are your deer in. Yeah. So for me, I I was up in the high country, a couple of my main spots in January, and I was looking around and I, I was seeing varying stages of velvet. Uh-huh. Um, but I also, on my trail cameras, which I'm passionate about, I had a rutting stag on Christmas Day. So he, he was hard antler coming into January and obviously a little bit more. And for his period, he was potentially the king of the mountain because most of his friends were all still in velvet. Yeah, gotcha. And they, they're not going to challenge him for a cycling hind. So he had the whole mountain to himself at that stage. So then pushing into February... It's the hottest month of the, the year for Victoria, so it's still getting pretty extreme, but the positive is it's that hot that a lot of the snakes aren't going to be out where yep. you want to be at that time. So I'm still checking my cameras and I'm still getting out and, and looking, and, and if available, absolutely, there'll be deer available to hunt, but I'm still in that mindset of where I am, where am I for when this weather changes? Because yeah. the bush is extremely noisy. Everything's dry. Yeah, you can't, you can't walk 20 meters without scaring whatever's 100 meters in front of you. Yeah. So it's a challenging time of year to hunt. You can still do it, and and I would suggest if you want to, just focus in on that last hour of day daylight. Yeah. Don't worry about the rest of the day. Yeah. Just and the first hour the in the morning, and just focus in on those two periods because that's when the deer are going to be most active. You don't necessarily have to be walking around chasing them. But just look for something where they want to be. So water, uh, wallow holes, scrapes, just some of those common places that deer need as part of their social setup. So pushing into uh, March. March is starting to ramp up by March. So you'll start to see more and more deer starting to rub out. You'll see rubs consistently popping up. And... Yeah, that's about when I start to get a little bit more serious about yep, the samba yep. hunting. I, I, I've already got my finger on the pulse with some areas that I've got and I've had cameras out on, so I'll start to really zero in on where they are. In a normal season, March is also the time that we'll start to see the fresh growth of feed around too. So yep. tail into summer, we start getting the rain, we've still got a fair amount of sunlight and and that's conducive to the feed growth so yeah and you're sort of saying uh from from obviously just listening to the last couple of days you you're likely to find that deer are a little bit higher um in the range when that feeds up 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 top there yeah so certainly that's fairly significant in in a lot of the high country and particularly the snow plain regions it's it, it does have a tendency to grow Hot, very high nutrient clover. So yep. I've been told, and I've never had it verified, but I've been told that the clover in the high country has a higher nutrient rate to farm pasture down on the gotcha. lowlands. And I yep. really don't know if it's true, but certainly the deer enjoy it. Not only that, 
the bulk that can, they're getting up into the high country to cast their antlers and then regrow their head. And yep. quite often we refer to it as summering. It's a little bit inconsistent with this, what I was saying before about the deer doing it all year round. Yeah. But what they do do is get up on tops because the snow's not around and the feed is and and they can grow their heads out in, in what is semi-open scrub so they don't have to worry about damaging their antlers or anything like that. They've got the feed, they've got the water, they've got the cover and that's all they need. And a lot of the time they've actually got no hunting pressure either because one of our main parks that encapsulates the the snow plain regions that you can hunt is actually closed to hunters. So okay. between uh, December 15 and, and February 15, you're not allowed to be in the high country. Right. A lot of the high country, or primarily the Alpine National Park, you're not allowed to be in there with a rifle or a bow. So there's sure. no hunting at all. Yep. Um, there's always exemptions to the rule there, and there's guys that are prepared to push the boundary. But all in all, the deer are unmolested over yep. that whole period. They're not getting touched so much. Yeah doesn't change their behaviours a whole lot, but they do get a little bit more comfortable being out in open places for longer. Yep. So then during March, most people are starting to look at the fallow rut and the red rut, and yep. quite often in Victoria that can kick off late March. So yeah. guys are starting to focus in on that, but for me I'm, I'm looking at the next month, which April really is almost my favourite time of the year yep. to be in the scrub chasing samba so and what's the standout what's the standouts of April you say that's going to be your, your sort of main favourite but what are the main say three or five points that, that make that the better the month that you like so in a normal season uh, you've had enough rainfall that the ground becomes soft yep the leaves on the ground are softening up so they're not crunching after every step but probably the biggest factor is there's that many guys sidetracked by fallow deer and red deer that there's just not as many people in the Hunt bush. Pressure. So yeah, got you. it's also about the time that the hound hunters kick off their season. So there's more more hunters that are outside of the the stalking group because a lot yep. of those guys with their season they they will stalk outside of their hound sure. season. So yeah, so there's probably it's almost a peak period to be in the bush and there's not many people to be competing with or sharing it with or however you want to view that yep. they're not really there doing it so um, it's a good time to really ramp it up uh, so then May May is probably my favourite time of the year but this May has been horrible and yeah. that's that seasonal change that we've all spoken about and you guys experienced in New South Wales yeah. where yep. it was just it was warmer than usual and there was a lack of rainfall yep. so everything came in too late yeah so May, typically in the high country, the deer are, are trying to cram in as much of that high nutrient feed as they can before they get pushed off the tops with the yep. snow. So yep. on a normal season, we'll have snow up here mid-May. So yep. you, you get the first couple of weeks. Quite often the first snow will come in and then it'll melt and the still, deer will still be here. They, won't, they don't see snow and run. They, they see the snow and they'll just get pushed down a little bit. Yep. And then they'll come back up. As soon as it's melted, they're back up again. So it's not until the snow sets in and stays in that they get forced off the mountain. And, and while they can, they'll capitalise on the feed that's up yeah, here. Because gotcha. they can eat it more feed in a hurry in the high country here and some of these open gullies than what they'll get when they're pushed down and they're picking through some of this other stuff. So it's more bang for their buck. They don't have to work as hard. Yeah. Uh, it's also about the time where they're 
it's about to start cooling off and obviously they need to eat more to stay warm as well. But if they can cram that in and get a little bit of fat lining on them, yeah, then it probably them helps them a little bit when the, the bad fronts come through, which yeah. will potentially push them down and not allow them to feed for a yep. day or two on end. So Yeah, getting down that little bit of poorer feed too. Like, you know, as you said, not, not quite as much nutrients, getting about it down a bit lower, and they're really just sort of browsing, getting what they can down there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in line with that, um, you're saying that they, they actually close these areas, they actually close them up to the public as well. So it all sort of, you know, it all sort of comes into that, you know, everybody's trying to survive for those cooler months through the through the middle of the year. Yeah. So come June, a lot of a, a lot of the Victorian bush, not just isolated to national parks, but there's a lot of seasonal road closures go on. Um, that's Delp or the DSE, whatever they're called now, that, that that's the environmental protection guys that are there just to manage the roadways and stuff. They close yep. them up because there's just too much damage on some of these sure. remote tracks. And then obviously if there's damage being caused, then they've got to rectify it come the, the end of that period of time. So winter primarily. Um, so they just close the gates and kick us out of the bush for that period of time yeah. no motorized vehicles on the roads and like i understand that but that just means that the hunters have to change their tactics so a lot of guys will employ the ploy of uh putting stockpiles in the bush while they've got access so yeah. just driving in and putting drums in the bush that have got uh, tarps and cooking yeah. gear and food and water and everything they need to be in there so that they can hike longer distances without the need to have to have all of these other essential yep. items. So technically they're only locking the roads for the vehicles, they're not actually saying that you can't hunt in there. Yeah, so you can still hunt there, there's no rule to as say you're not you allowed can. to hunt it, Yep. you just can't get access to it, so access cool. is the key. A lot of guys will ride push bikes, a lot of guys will just hike it, so yep. um, I, I personally just change the locations I hunt, I'll just, I'll hunt Lake Yildon and places like that where I've got access and yep. just hunt a different style of an same deer species but their behaviours are completely different so yep. I'll just change that up and, and if the hunting's no good for some particular reason then I'll just mix it up with a bit of fishing or something like that. For sure. So you obviously skip a few months there in, in, in your tactics with high country. What's the next month that sort of comes back into you say that's sort of you know worth worth targeting? Yeah so I start monitoring the snow and when the snow season's finishing up. So for me, that's my opportunity to start getting higher, not particularly the highest areas that I hunt, but just getting to the areas where the deer that have been pushed off uh, are starting to migrate back up and, yep. and just chasing that feed line that occurs when the snow starts melting. Uh, and they, they will just be following that up. So for me, I, I start to gain elevation in my hunting style and then ultimately November's when the gates open again and at that point and a lot a lot of other hunters are they're planning for that opening and they will be set up and ready to go for as soon as the date that it is actually open a lot of the time the gates are already been opened because they've got machines in there grading the roads and things just prepping it so uh, during that period, if the gates are open, you, you're not allowed to in there early, regardless of whether the gates open or closed. So yep. there's signs there saying that you will still be fine. But there's guys almost lining up like a ticket tape. Ready so, to go. Yeah, ready to go. They're all camped outside and 
that's the point. So you get up here and and then that's when the feed starts to be a factor. So this year was challenging mm-hmm. and the snow hung around for longer, which meant that it just wasn't seeing the sunlight. So uh, that just pushed the feed out a little bit longer before it started to regrow. It did eventually do it, but it was awfully close to the closures that they have for summertime. So they also will shut hunting down. And that's the December to January? Yeah, that's the ge- December 15 to February 15 yep. annually. Yep. And that's, there's a couple of arguments there. There's an increase in hikers in the high country and people and just campers and families and sure. people like that. So they're saying that hunters are potentially a risk, but it's also bushfire risk. Yeah, so it's also also. you could walk out and I've been up in where we're sitting now. I've been up here in the past and I've walked out there just to see a couple big plumes of smoke. So having contacts with some of the fireys down lower, I was just touching base with them to see what it's doing, where is it, mm-hmm. am I at risk? Uh, I kept on hunting because that's what I do <laughs> and I just kept an eye on it and, and then I pushed back out again. So yeah. yeah, that's in a nutshell, that's the annual hunting yep. style for me and how I approach it. Every now and then there's just few little variations to that where I might go chase a different species here and there. Yeah, sure. To be honest, I don't do much of that, but I'm hoping to ramp that up a bit in the future. So we, uh, you, you're saying that you, you obviously trail cams is big on and anybody that follows you on, on Instagram will, will know that well because you've got some cracking photos there. But um, you're sort of you're explaining to me, you know, a lot to do with how the deer, well, the sam stags in, in, in particular, but surprisingly, the hinds as well. Um, tell me sort of how you use them and, and a bit of the, the patterning that you've found with the stags and, and obviously throw in the, the hind thing as well. Yeah, so I, I use the cameras. I don't use them to identify a big stag that I want to hunt. I just use the cameras because I like to see the deer. I want to get a unique image. I like... I, I just, I'm passionate about that. So I'm not actually using them as a hunting tool to find an area because I've already got the areas and I know there's deer there and I know there's stags there. So for me, it's just trying to find a behavioral pattern or something like that. Yep. So you put a camera on a wallow hole, then you're going to capture whatever animals are passing by that wallow hole. And it's just as significant a social component for the deer, more so than just stags. So Samba aren't wallowing like pigs that need to wallow to cool, cool down, down. Yep. and potentially boars that are going to build up a bit more of a solid foreign pad or whatever yeah. Yep. yeah so samba are doing it to cool down so they can cool down they're doing it because it's an opportunity for them to signpost the area so the first thing that you'll see on a stag walking up to a wallow is that his pizzle's hanging out so he's yep. just approaching that wallow and he's pissing and all he's trying to do there is just mark his scent and override any other stag scent in the area so that's just his opportunity to say here i am yep. to any other stags that are potentially going to challenge him or he might be trying to challenge another one or, or most importantly to a hind that might be cycling so then the the does will actually call past those same wallows and they'll be sniffing them trying to identify what stags are active in the area so if she's cycling, she wants to know that the biggest stag in the area is available to mate with her. It's not first in best dress. So yep. um, not 
not far away from any wallow, you, you're going to find a scrape almost immediately. And that's the same purpose. The stag's going to roll around in the mud, he's going to pissed in it, and then he's going to go to a tree and he's going to stand there and just rub that urine infused mud up and down that tree as much as he can. And once again, it's just to mask any other stag sent there and also just to let everybody in the area know that he's there. So following on from that, a good people ask about what's the success rate of hunting wallows. Yep. And to I be honest... I, I think I did, actually. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, they're actually very, very low percentage. Yep. You could get lucky on your first time or get lucky on another time, but if you're prepared to sit off a wallow for eight hours in a day, good luck to you. But those deer in that area might only visit that once or twice a week yep. and potentially at night. So you're not even going to capture that moment. Sure. They will use them in daylight, absolutely, but it's not. you're probably a better bet at just trying to find uh, a hot trail that's leading to or from or linking up numerous wallows or scrapes, something like that. Yep. Same with scrapes. You've probably got a higher chance of catching a deer out on a scrape than a wallow. So, And generally it'll be a series of scrapes just marking out the whole gully system or mm-hmm. or a ridge line or, or just something where deer are passing by and they'll utilise that point to mark out where they are and what they're doing. You'll also see the rubs along that same line too, so yeah. quite often they'll signpost rubs up or down a, a ridge that is on the border of their area. So Well, we've seen that this afternoon. We, could, we You had a wallow, then you had the the posting, like your, your, your scent mark, um, and then as you went a little bit further, then there was a then there was a bit of a I guess you could say thrash in the bush, and then it sort of went out to a, like a feeding area. So you can yeah. sort of pattern of what they were doing along that trail. Yeah, but the ch- when they're active on them's one thing. So that stag will be comfortable knowing that his scrape and his wallow's been centred up yeah. until such time that you get heavy rain. As soon as the heavy rain's finished, then he'll make the opportunity then to hit that wallow. Yep. And then touch up all his scrapes again too. So. And you were saying that's a pretty good high, high, good, good time straight after rain because you you'll get them active on that. Yeah, and and in, I've experienced that myself in in a hunt a few years ago where we'd had torrential rain for multiple days to the point where we just sat at camp around the fire drinking cans. I'd tired of that because I just can't sit for that long, and <laughs> I just said to my cousin at the time, "Can you just drop me up?" about five or six k's upstream and i'm just gonna walk back down the river back to camp um and i dropped in off the ridge and even in a, it was still drizzly but the torrential rain had stopped and you could see the weather was breaking but yeah. as i've hit the river i could see a little bit of shaking and movement around a uh, tree fern and um i was looking at that and then before too long, uh, a stag's materialised and then he's moved off to the next scrape. So in between him doing that, it was quite thick, so I thought I'd better get into a shooting position and see how we go. I didn't carry cameras back in that day. I, I wish I had of, but they probably weren't the quality anyway. So <laughs> um, got into a position and managed to shoot that stag, which was a nice, mature Samba stag. Yep. But it just reinforced in my mind that the key to those types of signposting is after significant weather fronts. Yep, yep. And you were saying, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned yesterday about something, um, we were lucky enough to, to find a really nice stag yesterday afternoon, and 
you know, something that I know you would have been, you know, anyone would have been pretty happy to, to take. And unfortunately, Bill was on another ridge. Um, it was it was a rifle opportunity, unfortunately. Um, we, we probably could have made it happen. It was a 50-50, uh, probably wasn't even as good as 50-50 opportunity with the bow. Um, but there was just a few things playing against us with the wind and things like that. But I just happened to, you know, look up and I got the binos on him and Josh had spotted him. And... I said, oh, you know, Josh is going to grab his camera. And I said, oh, he's, he's preaching the tree. You then happened to tell me last night that I've actually captured something or caught something that you've only seen a couple of times and, and a lot of people go a lot of years to actually catch someone, catch a, a stag preaching a tree. Yeah, so there's two points there. Firstly was the stag is it was above average. So we've managed to get eyes on a stag that... <laughs> is reasonably difficult to find in this day and age so but then secondly while while i was fumbling around for my camera you've actually managed to see this large samba stag preaching which is yeah absolutely it's not something that there wouldn't be too many people that can sit there and hand on heart and say i've witnessed samba stag, a mature samba stag preaching yeah you'll see it in trail camera pictures and that's about it so and i wasn't even in a position where i could have filmed it because I just had all my gear sitting too far away. So yeah. managed to get the tail end of it where he was walking off and managed to get some more footage of him at a later stage. But, yeah, I missed that key moment. And, and you would have seen how quickly it occurs too. Yeah, it doesn't take long. So it, it does raise another point in that he, he wasn't preaching at that point because he had just been in a wallow. He was preaching to – he would have – pissed on the, the base of the scrape yep. but then he would have been rubbing his pre-orbitals up that tree as high as he could so there's a bit of a waxy substance there it's basically a uh, scent glands under yeah, their eyes scent, yeah, yeah so they are they are a scent gland and they would just be wa- rubbing a bit of that waxy stuff up on there as high yep. as they can so for them it's as high as they can because if they're reaching as tall as they can and they are the tallest that no other animal in the region is going to call past and rub his scent off. Yeah. And then that then leads us on to the next thing in that another thing that's not witnessed very often but does occur, and that's that Hines will actually get up there and sniff that tree too. So she's not doing it because she wants to rub her scent gland. She's just doing it to see what stag's there yep. and what stag is the tallest. And, and you've actually caught, you caught that on camera or is it? So my brother, my brother's been using trail cameras for a lot longer than me. He's, yep. he's much more proficient at it and he's been doing it for a lot longer, but he, he's set up numerous times on preach trees and he's managed to capture that on oh, enough times to, to, to justify that, that it's yeah. actually happening. So yep. something that you would never read in books about Heinz because people that just aren't seeing stags do it, let alone seeing the females coming through and do it. So yeah, yeah, beautiful thing of uh, of cameras. We um, we obviously, unfortunately, we didn't get a crack at uh, the the stag last night. We we we, we called it together, didn't we? We called yeah. it and said, look, I think we're going to have a crack at him in the morning. Um, from from yesterday afternoon, what was the reason you were pretty confident that we'd be able to find him again in the morning? What was the that that thinking that you had? Yeah, so that was weather dependent there. So we knew that it was going to be another frosty night and we knew that there was going to be sunshine there. And he was on a more northerly face, but yeah. northeasterly still. So it was going to be getting the first rays of sunlight. And we had seen him come up out of deep in the gully. So that kind of indicated that he may have missed out on that yep. warmer morning. So he's, he's cut back up high. 
there was a chance he was going to just keep on walking and pass out and go into the next system. But they don't do that that often without being pressured to do that. Mm -hmm. So hedging the bets, I, I was reasonably confident that we were going to find him again there on that face somewhere because they just don't, this time of year, they're just not moving. Yep mass distances so for him he was just getting there he wanted to get a feed enough of a feed and then just bed down away from the frost and then get as much of that morning sunlight as he could so we made the decision to to not pursue him then when we probably could have it was a little bit deceiving in the light because the sun had passed behind yeah, a big felt mountain a lot so than what it was, yeah. it did feel later and we probably had a bit more time than what we thought but it was still going to be challenging in in that the wind was the wrong direction yeah, to come was, from above and it wasn't we didn't consistent know what enough. was between us. And yeah, and he was a good stag, you know, that I guess we wanted a cleaner opportunity. Maybe it was probably the better point of it. But, yeah. um, I mean, I've got to admit, I just, to see something like that, you know, to see a stag that I guess you, they call a benchmark, you know, on your first, one of your first, well, first samba hunt. I mean, to me, that's that's been pretty satisfying for this trip so far and we've still got a bit of time again. Um, but we managed to, you know, we, we did, we watched him till dark and he sort of disappeared and, and we managed to get out of there. We, we ended up getting to that spot because you, you had something in mind and, and we're only talking a hundred meters either side of Ridge where you hadn't a hunted more or less. You, you got down there a few weeks ago and, yeah. um, you decided to fly a drone and, and lose a drone and, and make it drop out of the sky at the other side of the mountain. Um, so you didn't get to hunt that as you wanted to. But um, you you were pretty I mean you were pretty adamant that you wanted to get there sort of yesterday and for good reasons it, it, it proved right. But you mentioned something that it was a was it a, a quiet spot or that you, you used a, a term that you were looking for. Yeah, so there was a couple of reasons. I'd been in there the once because I I was just it was one of those times where I just wanted to see what was over that next ridge. So. I dropped down in there and, and then obviously I was sitting there and thought that I'd get that good footage of the drone going up and over, but <laughs> that managed to disrupt my opportunity to glass that face, which I was prepared to do until dark, sure. and that's what I wanted to do, but obviously losing the $2,000 drone, <laughs> I, I hightailed it up and over and managed to find it just right on dusk, for, dark, fortunately, but I'd seen enough there that I was pretty confident that it was... A high traffic area from the deer going from one system to the next. Yep. It was a reasonably low saddle. There was a couple of scrapes there. I'd picked up a couple of antlers up there as well, which were not matching the antlers, but just one was from the year before and uh, one was this year. So I was pretty comfortable knowing that hunters hadn't been there for a while because yep. one of the antlers was where a hunter would have sat if he was up there to if look down there. That so spot. you would have had to have sat on it to glass the area, but. There was quite a lot of game trails leading up and through it. So two two points for me was that we had half a chance to glass the system behind us. Mm -hmm. And and I know that there's animals in there and I know that the animals will cut across high but still down off that opposite side. There was also the chance that we could have one cutting through to, to use the corridor. Yep. That was and, our hope, wasn't it? Was uh, we're trying to get some, we're trying to ambush one through the saddle, and we're talking a saddle of what twenty meters wide, like we're in pretty yeah. gnarly country. So, from a bow hunter's perspective, our our odds were really on having an animal pass through yep. that. 
we would have heard him coming because it was reasonably thick and then he would have presented it and he should have been able to get into a shooting position if it happened. Obviously, it didn't happen that night. But, yeah, so then, and then the next thing was that it was a big open face. It was opened up into a big sheltered area and there was a high chance that that was going to be what a lot of hunters will refer to as a quiet zone where the wind could be whipping up either side of you, rustling trees and just blowing a gale and the deer aren't comfortable in that because it dulls their, their hearing and, and that's not something Samba like to do. So they'll always push across and find one of these quiet zones and that's just where the wind's passing around or over the top of and that was pretty important. And we got up in the morning and, and we actually had that heavier wind. So while we're walking out, I suggested that that we're still on here provided it is one of those quiet zones but if it wasn't then we're just going to have to fall back and hunt a different area or push a bit around further until we found one so uh yeah so that's that's pretty much my thinking the whole time i was heading in there was that was that the conditions were looking like they were set up for him to still yeah. be there and to justify that decision to go back and not only that to pass him up the night before when we probably could have tried to rush a stalk yeah yeah. Because you never know. That might be the only time we ever see that dag, yeah. stag ever. So It's a bit of a hindsight thing. We 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 made that decision, we're comfortable with the decision, we made it and we stuck to it. And, you know, which is sometimes hard to do. You know, we'd probably be spitting chips if we if we had a blown him or we'd be celebrating if we had a taken him, but you just never know these things. But we ended up getting up this morning, Bill come with us and um we got above, there was a cliff line above, above where this where we'd seen the last last seen the stag and you're obviously pretty confident that he would he wouldn't cross that next one, and we mucked around for a little bit and we glassed up for we glassed for I don't know we're probably sitting up there for half an hour, forty five I suppose maybe longer. Um, I think my stench <laughs> eventually got the better of him. I think I I cut across the top and uh, I didn't realise when I dropped in a little gorge that the wind was it was sort of yeah kind of done me in, um, and Bill actually happened to catch the stag. Not hightailing it, but he was definitely wasn't happy with with what he had smelt and 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 moved down the ridge. So um, we sort of it was all it was there. The the game plan was right. You tick those boxes off. But the catch to all this was I actually managed to see. Or I heard as we were sitting there chatting and working out what we're going to do next. We were actually looking down to the little plateau that Josh and I were on yesterday last night, and um, I heard some rustling down there. And I think I cut a conversation off and. It was only probably a couple of minutes later. We actually, I actually heard a stag come directly through that little corridor that we were hoping for last night. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't get a shot at that. We we're, were going to hit him with a rifle, but he just didn't give us a clear shot, and he disappeared. But you pretty much picked him from where he was going to go. Immediately you seen him, you you kind of pick where he was going. You said he's going to go down. What made you think that he was going to go straight down? Because I picked he would keep coming left, but you you pretty much thought no, he's going to go down. So just his behaviour as he was cutting down, you could see twice or three times we've seen him change direction. Yeah. So that... That confused me. <laughs> yeah, so I was pretty comfortable knowing that it wasn't a scent. I did think that maybe it was, but if it was, he would have responded a little bit different. So I, I didn't manage to get binos on him to see his headgear, but you've seen enough to suggest he was like he was another mature stag and he might yep. have been a mid-20s type head. Yep. So that he should have, if it was our scent, 
coming down off high. He would have took off. He would have raised his tail. He would have stomped. Yeah. He would have honked. He would have his ears would have twitched. He would have paused. He would have done anything but just keep the same pace and and just change directions like he did. So, sure. um, you could say it's an educated guess, and maybe I'll get lucky here and there. But yeah. I, I did, that was my gut feel, and you, that's all you got to go by. Yeah. Um, had he gone the path that he was originally heading, then Bill was just going to give it to him at maybe 100 metres down yeah. below us. So. Yeah, I mean, it, and that's what, you know, as I said, I found a, a new respect for, for the guys chasing Samba, and, and especially you guys in these high country. It's a it's a game of inches. Like, it, it just, we're talking, you know, pretty thick brush, you know, it's steep, steep country. Like, like I'm not joking, we had our asses falling out coming back out of that plateau this morning. We've done it twice, two days in a row. And, you know, obviously, as as you do when you're camping out, you know, you're limited water, limited food. But we, we did it. But, um, you know, move, moving forward, we, we kind of changed up games. You had a, you had something in your in your mind where we wanted to hit it, you know, this afternoon. Um, we kind of really changed things up. We sort of come to a whole nother area on the way back. It was about halfway back to the truck. It sort of changed all different things. So that was a completely different hunt to, to what we'd just been doing the last day and a half. Talk us into that transition of what those deer are doing at that point. Yeah, so that, that area, you get one crack at it because once you've cut across it and centred it up, you're not going to have a chance to see the same animals yep. again a day or two later because they're very much creatures of habit and they can be their pattern, their behaviours can be patternable for short times, but the minute you break that pattern or that routine... That's it. Forget about it. Might take a month. Might might take two months. But they won't do the same path, or they'll just change something up. They might end up in the same spot to feed, but they just won't come out where you think they're going yeah. to. And yeah. that's because of something unnatural in their environment, yeah. and the masters are picking it up. So, which is kind of why we left the stags this morning. Like that, that that area was kind of done. Like we'd yeah. sort of done that. So then, on top of that, we got one crack at it, but. It's best hunted in the evening because the animals are kind of cutting up from down below where they're bedded all day and then they're getting up onto a couple of these series of shelves yep. that in good conditions have high volumes of feed. Evidently, we, we cut in there and, and the first little patch had enough feed to have us Yeah, had the green shoots and that there and things looking good. It's probably fresher sign that we've seen. Yeah, so there was quite a lot of feed. So they're still moving through there. And they're picking off a little bit of the last of the wild raspberries that haven't died off. And there's still some dandelion shoots there. And there was a little bit of clover, but not much. Not like when I say they're clover fields, quite often you're talking blankets, oh, half a foot thick. It's, yep. it's ridiculous. You've never seen anything like it in your life. So, um, but that just hasn't happened. It didn't happen after last winter, and it didn't happen after summer either so and that's just all weather dependent but it does give you an opportunity to cut across some snow grass which is ordinarily it's pretty quiet there's a few sticks in there that every now and then you'll break a stick that you don't mean but deer aren't unnerved by a single stick snapping they don't like crunchy crunchy human footsteps because it's unnatural Mm -hmm. but the odd stick snapping it's not a bad thing if anything you could do it as a tactic to try Get them intrigued because if that's all they've heard and they can't smell you, they might come in come to check out what it was. So, yep. um, but for us, we were just going to cut across a couple of these shelves, just looking down. Most of the hunting was going to put you close to bow range at the point of a seeing them. 
there's a couple of wallow holes and a couple of breach trees and things like that. So all good plans. You expect it to come together and everything worked apart from the fact that the wind <laughs> to the was wind killing us. Throws one straight back at you. <laughs> yeah. And we tried to approach from the direction that the wind was going to assist us, but it just kept swirling and changing and it was just never going to happen. Kind of done so. afternoon, but it really... It, it it may have done over afternoon, but I, I I got to admit, like I got a lot out of it because it was like a complete flip. Where we've been hunting for a day and a half, you know, to see that the they're the same deer using, you know, well, more or less in a way the same deer, but why they were there and those kind of things, I got a lot out of it. Yeah, it also gave the opportunity to have a look at a flooded wallow from the rain and the snow and things like that that the deer aren't touching, and then seventy meters away. Uh, wallow that doesn't hold the water but still sloppy mud and the deer are using that yep having said that they hadn't been in it for maybe oh, 48 hours or something while, but yep. they've, they were definitely using that more regularly than yep. the flooded one because they don't particularly like that high volume of water and once again it's all about that scent yep. so they go up in there and they'll they'll wee in it and and just mark it up and when you do that in a large volume of water it's not going to have the same effect so they just won't use it because they're not using it to cool down so yeah that's right yeah they'll drink out of it and so those kind of things but they really yep. like that mud because it you said it comes back to that scent yeah and funnily enough as you as you mentioned before there's a preach tree what i don't know you know 20 yards away always you won't ever ever find a wallow without a preach tree we're pretty much within eyesight it never happens i'm yet to see it and i doubt anyone else ever has so generally if you find a wallow have a look around and within maybe 30 meters tops there will be a a scrape and a preach there so and it should be caked in mud yeah yeah Yeah, i just found one so i'm i'm not the tallest person but you know i'm 510 or something like that I've got me bow with big long equalizer uh, on it. I've got that setting up. I made the boys take a photo of it, and that mud is still higher than as far as I can reach up. Yeah, these things are freaking huge. So yesterday I'm here glassing, and Josh obviously found the first one. And I, I don't know what I was trying to find, but you know I guess I'm you know I'm thinking pigs or something like that. So I'm I'm looking for these, and I was getting a. It was hard to read the distance of because the country is pretty steep. You, it's very hard to sort of work out your depth of field. Yeah. But I tell you what, when you find one, man, they stand out like nothing else. Like they are a big animal. Yeah. So you're fortunate enough that the three animals you've seen have all been mature stags. So yeah. One obviously had an antler malformation. So. So we found one yesterday morning that, yeah, unfortunately only had one. Otherwise, it might have been in a bit of trouble from old Billy over here. But um, we. Uh, yeah, he was probably in a pretty hard little hollow, wasn't he? He was sort of. Yeah, it was going to be go. a challenge. I think we could have got, we could have got a rifle hunter into a position to shoot him, but then it would have been a hell of a carry oh, out from there. So brutal. he was 800 meters from our location, and we we're already a couple hundred meters down the ridge, and yeah. and it's some of the steepest country I've ever been in. So <laughs> yeah, I'm um, going to put me in up for that too. But yeah, it's pretty unique opportunity to do a, the first three Sambi you've seen have all been mature stags. Oh, mate. It- Unreal. And a couple, probably a average and just above average too. So, and even that, the the stag we nicknamed the unicorn. He he was still maybe twenty five or twenty six years yeah, long yeah, on his good one side. Good head, yeah. And then on the other side, he just had a little stumpy carrot thing pointing horizontal off the side of his head. So, there's another number of factors that can impact that. And uh, age is obviously the first one people go to, or or poor genetics, but. 
poor genetics is something that it's just so widely used and yeah. a lot of deer species cop it in the neck and samba get it just as much and yeah. people often are looking for a reason to call it a cull or something like that but most of the time you're going to find it's either old age or yeah. a damage to its body somewhere so could have had a limp on one side yeah, or something. Yeah, could have had a know. limp, it could have had a hernia, like all yeah. sorts of things are enough to impact that. So it's all because it's all about hormone imbalances. So yeah. any significant injury is going to impact antler growth on any species of deer. So um, I tend to think that maybe that was that for yeah. him because he, although he was a long way away, he did look to like he was moving pretty well. And the other, the good antler didn't show signs of no, old it was, age. It, so. was a, it was good. Yeah, he was good head on one side. Yeah. I mean, not that where you know, if it was me, and he was in shoes, right? Like he was in, like it was, it was going to be taken. Like I, I wasn't going to be fussy, but for where he was, and you know, the ability to have him try and get him out, it was probably a full day's effort to try and pull him out of where yeah, he was. was at so least the day, yeah, yeah. So and so we decided to. He 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 got moving a bit a bit around it as well, so. He was in his original sunbed in the morning from maybe 9 o'clock, 10 or 10.30. He decided to get up, have a feed for 20 minutes, and then he bedded down in a sunny spot 30 metres above. But the bed he was originally in at the same time was then shaded over. So he predicted the shade coming in before it had and shifted to an area that it wasn't going to be. So... And then he was still there when we left that location in yeah. the end. So, yeah. But it's not not a lo- not an area that we we're going to get in and out of easy enough to <laughs> no. to warrant it. It was. Uh, I think it was a pretty good wise decision to leave him where he was. Not that I'm wanting to, you know, we're not scared of hard work, but that, that was going to be tough down in there. Yeah. So going throwing it out to you, if if there's someone out there that uh, is in Samba country. They've gone through. They've you know they've listened to the podcast and they've they've said yep I've seen all these signs. I'm you know I've I've seen the preach trees. I've seen the the scrapes. I'm seeing the wallows. They're freshly used. I'm not finding them. What advice can you give them? What's something they could change up that could possibly help them? You know maybe maybe spot one and then obviously eventually harvest. Yes, I get this question a lot via social media, and I'm always happy to offer my advice. But my advice isn't the be all on end all either so I what for me as the hunter I am is that I, I was fortunate that I've spent enough camps with a multitude of good hunters people that I highly respect and have more I would even say have more knowledge than me but what I did do is just grab little aspects of what made them yep. them and then I've created me and it's just a little bit of maybe 20 different hunters so yep. um, that and the fact that I want to keep learning but if they've got all that sign and it's all fresh then they're in the right spot but maybe they're too busy trying to move around to find the deer where they are rather than just being a bit more patient and holding up and utilizing those two peak hours of the day where they're the most active and that's the first hour of daylight and then the last hour of daylight if I had to pick one of those two it's the last hour of daylight we call it the Samba Hour for a reason. It's when they're the most active and yep. getting moving around. And on top of that too, if, if you've got a big stag in the area and you want to be holding out for him, don't start moving just because you've got enough light to get back to the car. Sit it out because those big boys quite often, they'll wait until absolute last light to come out of the shelter of the trees or something like that. Yep. So 
just be patient with them and try to not force it. So yeah. moving around, you're just going to spook them. If, if you don't have areas where you can glass them up or or set up an ambush, then just drop back down and, and look at where the high, highest activity is on the game pads at the time. And keep in mind, the minute you've walked on that, you're going to impact the next time they use it. So yep. you probably will change that pad. So it's always important to understand where the others are. So there's always going to be numerous pads and they'll always use them. Beyond that, Another tactic would be just walk those game pads. Yep. You walk those game pads through the periods where the deer are active, there's fair chance they're just going to come noise. walking straight up towards you and yep. just keep your noise to a minimum and try to keep your scent to a minimum too. So there's no point getting in there in the morning and just stomping around the waller holes and the preachers and the game pads and then yep. going back there in the afternoon hoping the deer are going to be there because they won't. Be strategic in your strategy. Yeah. Yep. So do it, absolutely do it. But do it and be aware that you need to back out of there too because you've just centred up the whole area. But do yep. it so that you gain the knowledge of where you are and then come back another day. And you do that enough, you, you'll have some success there, no doubt at all. Yeah. You made a good point. Like, you, you're seeing the sign and those kind of things. You're in the right... <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> you made, um, you know, yeah, you made a good point. Like, obviously, yep, sign's there, stick at it. How long do you stick out at four until you change something up? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. So there's probably no set time frame, but if you're if you if you're going in there multiple times and there's still fresh sign, then you're still a chance. But if you're keeping going in there and then you're slowly seeing the sign start to dissipate, then you probably need to just give it a break, just give it a spell for a couple of weeks because yep. too much activity will disturb them too so yeah I, I would suggest if you're in that position depending on how many times you're hunting it let's just say half a dozen times and you haven't seen them and and the sign is slowly sort of not not as prevalent as it was then I, I would say, suggest just giving it a break yep use that time to to go exploring and find a new area but don't give up on that area because it's only that the deer have become a little bit nervous from constant human scent around different places. So, yep, yep. yeah, just give it a spell. I don't know, go fishing, go go to a new spot. I, I tend to just, when I get in that position, I, I just go exploring. Check something out. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you did that today, you know, like obviously that the, the biggest stag that we, unfortunately, we believe, got a whiff of us and he was pretty well batted where we thought he was going to bat. We just couldn't glaze eyes on him for the angle we had. He pushed out, and and I think I asked the question, you know, when's he be back? And you said, look, he'll be he'll be a good week or two, yeah. but you did think that he would come back into there because you went back down into there, um, you wanted to suss it out, know what the stalk would have been like for down the track, you wanted you check the beds out, and obviously you've already mentioned why you you think he'll be in there because it had, I suppose if you want to say the the five things that a stag is looking for, it had it in there. It was the quiet spot, you, week or two weeks, and he'd be back in there. You think? Yeah, I think he'll be, when he's been given enough time and space, he, he'll just mooch on back in there, but he'll be cautious too. So for me, I took the opportunity once we busted him out and obviously after the other stag went, I took the opportunity just to do a bit of a, a loop around down in there. And I, what I did find was that he, he'd been pretty resident there. Yep. So yep. I had enough sign there to suggest that he'd been 
visiting that face for the last couple of weeks at least. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've got rain, so it's hard to predict age of mark beyond that. But there was enough big mature stagmas punched into the soft soil there that suggested he'd been there for a little bit. There was a few little rubs and some scrapes and... Um, yeah, no wallows, surprisingly. So, and you hit but there water was too because you, you collected water down there, so was, there yeah. wasn't really anything in it. No, so there was a couple soaks coming up out of the ground and then just running over a couple little rock formations that created a bit of a shower, and the deer were using that to drink from, but they hadn't turned it into a wallow because it was a little bit too rocky, I think. So Yeah. I think um, Bill's trying to put us on a rotisserie. Holy shit, that fire's hot now. <laughs> it's pretty warm. Yeah, it's he's just wanting to get those ember trails in his photos. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Yeah. He's got all the setup here. He's got a tripod and camera and everything. And a stubby in his hand, so he's all tin, I should say. Yeah, I'm struggling to drink mine because I'm thinking people will just hear me slurping down the beer. <laughs> so, um, <coughs> yeah, that, that was interesting. And, and that deer, it's hard to put a time on it. Yeah. But I know... Quite often in the past when we would hunt these big stags with dogs, we'd push them out of an area and maybe within a week you'd start to see that stag mark in there again. And okay. Yeah, they, they will always come back. That's their home range and that's their home range. Yep. They don't just let it go because there's always a subordinate in the area that's happy to take it over. So that's another consideration to the other stag we've seen today. So there's a possibility that he might have been coming in and just seeing what the big boy was doing and yep. just seeing if he's still there or not because he yep. was just trying to just might have got whiff of him and thought oh no he's still here I'm out yeah so there's always satellite stags there just waiting mm. for the main dominant stag just to misplace a step or get shot by a hunter or yeah or be in velvet and then not being prepared to fight so then the the subordinate comes in and has his time for Takes a little over. bit until the big guy bring, uh, grows his antlers back so with um, you, you mentioned you mentioned home range here, and, and and you gave me a story of one that you, I believe you caught on trail camera, was it, or yep. did you pass? And he was shot. Look to me, a freaking long way away. Roughly, you know, with a home range, what have you heard them go up to as as a range that or or a distance that they will they will travel? Yeah, so a lot of the literature that if you read that, that'll suggest that they've got home ranges up to 15 square kilometres. How you could quantify that, I'm not sure. Mm. But the only way you'd verify it is by actually seeing the animal. I don't think you can use areas where there's hounds getting put through as a measure because yeah. quite often you can push Because that pushes an area. them, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So you could potentially push a stag out of his home range one day and then another crew then puts their dogs on him the following day because they found again. his fresh marks again. And then you could push him again. So... He could get pushed multiple times away from what is his own area, but he will and should ultimately come back to it yep. unless, of course, he gets lucky and he enters an area that the main he, stag he had likes. just been knocked out of and he then just takes that over. So yep. um, the experience I had, and it was through social media, so it's one of the benefits of social media in that I had my trail cameras and um, I got these pictures of the stag, but then I never seen him again. It's not that far from an area where it is hound hunted fairly well. And I had a guy contact me and say, hey, I think I've, I might have shot the stag you got on your camera. It was about the same time, give or take a couple months, but it was the same season. And, and he just asked out of curiosity where it was and being a bit hesitant, I, I just said, oh, can you send me a photo and we'll just see if it's the same stag first. And he did that. and told me where he'd shot it and then I explained where I had and it was probably 
30 odd kilometers as yeah. the crow flies so that's not a natural home range because that's yeah. as the crow flies if it's across the ground it's probably 50 kilometers or more yeah. so i suspect he's one of these deer that has been pushed out by hounds and then potentially pushed again by hounds and then eventually he's got shot yep. by another hound crew mind you in another area so yeah i, I personally think it comes down to what they need uh-huh. so they're not going to have huge home ranges if they've got excuse me if they've got everything that they need in that area so if they've got feed if they've got the hinds if they've got water if they've got cover they don't need a big home range yeah that you'll find that there's times where there's a contradiction to that rule but all in all yeah you, you could have a small tight gully that's surrounded by farmland but a, a deer could be a resident in there for a long part of his life so then on the flip side you could get up in this high country and it's it's as sparse as you yeah. can think of and yeah these deer they're going to mix it up a bit and they're going to push out at different times but they're going to come back too and i i, I tend to think that that 15 kilometers is probably the the excess to the rule so yeah, yeah. they're going to have much smaller ones and they're just going to move around and yeah they're not going to tend to get much of a pattern on them yeah yeah we're obviously sitting in or well, as everyone knows we're in the victorian high country um for anyone that's that's not Australian or maybe Australian and doesn't realise and, and I didn't realise how, how big it was but you know we are actually hunting public land um, it's not a huge thing that it is in Australia um, I wish there was more of it and I think other states could you know could really do something you were going to burn your sock if you did it is it's on fire you're um Josh has just put his sock in the fire sorry about that yeah we're obviously we're on fire you know we're on public land and it's, it's, it's awesome just to be able to rock up off the road, grab your bow, grab your rifle, throw the pack on, and we're, we're, we're in there. We're walking trails, we're past backpackers, saying g'day, you know, there's huts there you can use. What's it like to have that in your backyard? Because you've obviously heard me whinging about it today, but I don't have it. But, um, you know, what's it been like growing up with that? Yeah, well, I guess we take it for granted. So that's a different story. We'll probably delve into that a little bit later, but... We do certainly take it for granted. We just think it's always going to be there, but you never know. There's always only takes a change in um, political parties to then all of a sudden change that. And there has been a push of late to create more national parks, which will close up areas to hunters. So, yep. um, but for me, yeah, I, I certainly appreciate it. I enjoy it, and I understand how limiting it is for for you guys in New South Wales and with the R license and state forest yeah. versus national parks and things like that. So we're fortunate enough that we've got national parks, but we've still got opportunity to hunt them. So, yeah. Um, yeah, not only that, we've got all of this large parcels of land and it's the, the stronghold of the Samba deer population. So they were originally released in sort of Southern Victoria, down in the Cooey up swamps, as well as Mount Worth. There was a couple other smaller releases, but they were the two main ones. But this whole population of Samba deer that now is spreading north enough towards Canberra to be justified. There's people that argue that they're just some more excapees, but they're not. They're too widespread. Yeah. The numbers are too dense. That's just natural spread because the Samba are 
capable of it. They're probably the most hardy species in the in the country, and they're also the ones that, if the population start to increase too much, then they start spilling out into the next system. Yeah. So, um, over the course of 150 odd years, that's meant that they've covered maybe a third or more of the state of Victoria, and they're pushing up the coast of New South Wales there towards Canberra. So. Um, back to your question, I sort of went off track there, but <laughs> that's right. We do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, and certainly for, fortunate. I think it's probably a model that the rest of the country should be trying to replicate because they're all crying out for pest control. Yeah. I don't like calling the deer pests because they're not. They're still classified as game in the country. So yep. anybody that calls them pest is misinformed. Yep. But the pest animals are the pigs and goats and foxes and things like that. So if some of these states where those animals are prevalent, if they want to be trying to control them better rather than paying big bucks to get aerial shooters and things like that in, maybe just given you guys, the, the law-abiding hunters of New South Wales, Queensland, Northern Territory, giving you a little bit more access to yeah. be controlling numbers yeah. on a less or a more cost efficient way oh definitely so. I mean I know I know you're very passionate about this topic and I know you hold back and you know of, of of certain topics but you know with the public lands down here and, and obviously it's hard for us to talk about it because we don't have them as much or as openly used I suppose is a better way to put it um, as hunters you know what do you see what do you want to see more of and how can without you know without getting too deep you know how how can we continue what we've got and and protect it and possibly open it up to to maybe the rest of the country not that i want to show everyone your secret spots in here but um you know it's obviously very open to get down here and chase amber you know what what can we do to make sure that this stays here oh we just need people to be using the bush in the right manner take if you bring rubbish up you've got enough space to take the rubbish home if there's road closures, stay away from them. If there's areas where you're not supposed to be, there's no point sitting in there doing donuts, churning up the road, because that's all the things that will cause closures. Yep. It gives everybody that uses the bush a bad name. Yeah. Carcasses is probably the big, big one. So there's a lot of hunters that will bring their carcass into camp, butcher it there, but then they'll just leave all of the leftovers in full sight of everybody the general else. public. So. Yep. Joe Joe Average comes up here with his family just to go camping for the weekend. He shouldn't have to be sitting there looking at a deer's rib cage and pelvis yeah. and neck and spine. So if you've carried it out of the bush as a whole animal, then surely going. you can just carry that leftover far enough away that someone's yeah. not going to see it. Um, another one that's been pretty common up where we're at at the moment is just people shooting deer off the road. So whether that's... The guy's doing the culls and they're losing the animals and then all of a sudden it's falling over in an area that's still visible or whether it's just the guys that are just up here just trying to shoot just them. them away. And they're just not utilising it, just leaving it there. But yeah. that's just a, a a festering, smelly animal sitting there that yeah, once again the, the, the general public come up here and they start thinking, what are these hunters doing? Yeah. But it's very rarely is it ever the hunters it's just the shooters that are around in the system so yeah. we need to be a little bit mindful of that um social media is the big one so the 
the blow up of social media over the last few years has given anybody with a camera it now has a voice. Yeah. So we need to be mindful of how we want to express ourselves as hunters to the non-hunters or to the people that are not necessarily aligned with our values. And I'm not preaching here at all in that I've been guilty of as well in that it takes one anti-hunter to comment on a post and then I'd just go back and, and then all of a sudden it'll turn into this She's vicious, right. vicious brawl online between two of us, but no one wins out. No, no. So I've grown from that because it's just wasted my time. So now it's just as simple as like blocking the people and deleting the comments because got to be mindful of that whole shit fight backwards and forwards. Mm, people then, someone else then comes along and reads it and then all of a sudden I've been dragged into something that maybe justifies somebody else's argument. So I think we've all got a responsibility to make sure that what we're posting on, on the internet, so not just social media, but YouTube and blogs yeah. and you name it, there's so many different avenues these days that... We need to be mindful of what it is that we're putting there and making sure that it is something that is going to be accepted. Not mm -hmm. saying that we need to change our ways. Hunting's hunting. Yep, it is what it is. We still we still have the days where things just don't go our ways, mm -hmm. but we can consciously not put some bloody photo up or something yep. like that. So I understand people that get a little bit offended by that. So yep. some people are... Are not, they're not raised in households like that. They don't like scary movies. They don't like bloody movies. So then all of a sudden they're seeing live images of, or real images of bloodied animals and they don't understand it. So giving them the opportunity to understand what we're doing. I, I like to try to influence some of the people that don't understand. So just educate them a little bit. I don't go out. I'm not going to go out knocking on doors saying hey here, here's some nice clean photos what do you think about this but what I will do is the people that I know that aren't hunters I'll do my best to promote hunting to them in as strong a light as I can mm. so I give them meat I'll explain what I'm doing I'll show them photos of live animals I'll show them clean photos of dead animals and yeah just a little bit putting a little bit more of a conscious effort into what yep. you're presenting so I think there's blood all over it just Get, a, get your sleeve or grab some grass or something and just wipe the blood off so it's a little bit cleaner or tongues hanging out. And There's so much you can do or don't take the photo at all. Don't put it on social media. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not for one that, you know, I, I, I believe in everybody showing what they do. If, you pre, if you're passionate in it, you, you, you put it out there. But just remember that there's people who are going to see that photo or whatever or that, that comment or whatever it is. People are going to see that that don't understand it. So we just need to think about that I, I wrote a thing in a forum, the bow hunting forums, you know, it's a great community. It's been around for a long time. I don't know you've been on there. Um, you know, and, and someone said about, you know, what is hunting now? What, what is hunting these days? And it was an interesting topic. And I think a lot of people can't answer it. Yeah. And I think the biggest trouble is, is there's a lot of, a lot of us out there. I mean, you and I have made a life of this. This is our passion. We, we live and breathe it. Our families follow suit, whether they like it or not, most of the time. Um, but this is this is just what we do, you know. We spend money and we we work to get away. We know our story. We know why we do it. We know. So when somebody asks you why do you hunt, we can tell them. 
you know, and, f and you and I may have completely different reasons. We've found out we don't, you know, we're very, very similar. But I think the biggest thing is, is a lot of people just follow suit. They're just going out to shoot something because their mate did it. I think everybody finds their own story. If it's just that you like going out and shooting a few rounds, that's fine. But believe in that and don't make an excuse for it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, I think at the moment we're going for a little period where people are trying to justify shooting trophy animals. So I'm not saying trophy hunters that are going and maybe just going and shooting some ridiculously in big red deer in a pen, yep. but I'm going to go out and I will shoot a big Samba stag if I see one because I want to shoot that Samba stag. Yeah, I'll utilise the everything on it. I'll yep. utilise the meat, I'll utilise the antlers, but I am heading out and I want to shoot that. Yep. If, I, if I'm shooting my meat, I'm more selective because... They don't all eat the same. No, Some of these exactly samba, right. are, it, they don't eat great. So unless you've got somebody with access to mincers and sausage-making machines, they're not going to be a pleasant-eating animal. So be mindful that not every animal is what is going to be table fare. So it's kind of a difficult argument to say, I shot this animal because he's past his prime and and all of these different reasons to justify why you actually shot a big animal versus something else. I hunt because I love hunting. I love the challenge. I don't, I'm not driven by shooting animals every time I go out. Mm -hmm. I, I will always keep my freezers full. My family ha ha eat venison three or four nights a week mm -hmm. in different forms. I grew up eating it. We didn't eat beef. Dad refused to buy beef when we were growing up because he was producing the, the red meat, which was venison. So we pretty much ate venison. And it's a little bit on the, the whole Bubba Gump shrimp factory with the whole <laughs> different types of ways to produce venison. Yeah. But that's what we were like. It's like venison sausages and venison snitchels and venison mince and venison jerky and you name it. The yeah, list went Dad, on. it's all venison. Yeah, it was all venison. <laughs> And it was all overcooked when it come to the old man because he couldn't cook. So, but that was it. There, there was no ifs or buts. There was no opportunity for any other type of meat there. So I get it. I get both arguments, but I don't quite understand the whole need to try justify it a different way because yeah. there is a place there for it. We're all guilty of it. We're all striving to shoot the biggest of the species yeah. that we're hunting at the time. Whether you admit it or not. Yeah but it's whether or not you choose to admit that that's what you're doing yeah. and how you how you utilize it beyond that is whatever makes you feel good about it yeah yeah so i think we are in that position at the moment where it's probably some of the bigger social media accounts and things like that at the moment yep. are certainly doing that it's i shot this humongous ball but he was past his prime and that's the justification for doing yeah. it rather than yep. I wanted that biggest of that the biggest one. I, can. Yeah. I mean and, and that's the thing, you know, I think we're just we're just a little bit and I, I you know, we don't jump down too many political holes, you know, with podcasts, but it's you know, it's been something that's playing on on my mind a little bit and, and your you, our conversations tend to lead down those lines occasionally. Um, you know, when you see something on that you just sort of cringe and it's like, What, you didn't have to say that. So I think for everybody out there that listens to this, you know, just know your story. Just, you know, don't try and justify something, you know. Learn how you can explain it to someone. Not all of us are, are well-written or well-spoken or whatever, but if someone asks you the question, don't blow them off. You know, if they've asked you the question, 
they actually have a genuine interest that could actually be someone that you can actually help turn into understanding it. And the more we can do that with, with you know, everybody outside the hunting community, it will only help it be more accepted. It's It was always was accepted. I don't know why it isn't now. But I think it's just, it's probably come back to us a little bit. Stop blaming everybody else. I think we need to blame ourselves a little bit and, and work on how we um, show everybody else. Yeah. So I... I used the term today that I, I want to try present hunters and that's the whole community. I, like I'm, I'm not a figurehead, but I will represent a small minority of that in that I don't want us to be portrayed as these gun-toting, arrow-slinging cowboys because we're not. We're all passionate. We've all, we've all got our story. It's probably worthwhile asking yourself that at some stage. If you are asked by a non-hunter, what, why do you hunt? putting a bit of thought into the answer to that because it's not an easy answer to or question to answer no, at all. It's so not. It's very hard. I've struggled with it a little bit myself in the past, but I just I just stay true to what I am and I just tell it how it is for me, but I present them with a lot of arguments that they struggle to not mm. understand and then they're more appreciative of that than what you'd believe. So yeah. don't just think that anyone that's not a hunter isn't going to understand it. So I've got friends that are non-hunters and they ask me to supply them as much venison as they possibly can. And, and sure. if they could, they would be hunting in themselves, but they just, they're not sure how or then they've yep. got other commitments. So the whole whole food movement at the moment is just gaining traction too. So there's a lot of people that want to live off the land organic. and harvest yep. organic meat. They are going to be the new frontier coming yep. into hunters. Huge. The more we can assist those people the better it'll be because we'll be slowly growing in numbers and then there'll be other people that have a different story to it and, yep. and they are purely driven by the food first but I imagine sooner or later they'll go down the path of the rest of us and start <laughs> seeing a big set of antlers but yep. yeah I I personally think that we we've all got a responsibility definitely to ensure that hunting is explained in the cleanest and yep. best light it can be and we don't have to hide in holes. We yep. don't have to hide the fact we are. Yep. But just, yeah, just understand that some people might not understand it, but they're open-minded. And if you can give them a valid argument, then yep. they'll understand. They will understand that. So. Exactly. You're like me. You know, hunting's obviously brought. Well, it's your life. You know, it, it says it's that you'll, you know, listen to your family story and that, and you know, from the conversations we've had about the last few days, you know, with you, your kids and that following suit. And I mean, I think one of the young fellas shot a deer over the hands this morning, and you know, the, the text messages come through, and you can see the passion there throughout your family. I mean, it's it's awesome. But that's actually obviously, you know, that that sends you elsewhere. You know, you, you've you've been in New Zealand, you've um, you know, you've experienced that. You weren't that you know you weren't sort of that up on it at that point and but now you've done it like that's changed your whole look at it again um you, you kind of want to pursue that again but this year you're going it's, it's Waitau Jason this year is that right yeah yeah so myself and Bill the man that won't put the mic on he, <laughs> he's sitting over here he's sitting over here lays and around just beer's empty too mate just yeah. so um yeah myself and Bill decided that we're gonna dipped the toe in the water on our first North American hunt. So we're going to Wisconsin to hunt whitetail with Billy Moles. So Billy Moles has, has got a, a good reputation within Australia for being a, a moose guide primarily. Yeah. I know quite a few people that have been guided by him on the moose, but I also 
had spoken to the guys about the whitetail opportunity too on his home ranch. So yep. that was appealing to me and it was an opportunity to get there, meet Billy. And yep. I, I am keen to pick his brain a bit more about a Alaskan hunt with him. Yep. So we spoke yep. about... Good way to do it. Good way to set it up. You know, do something that's a little bit not as full on. Like, you know, obviously moose aren't a lot of money. Yep. It's a big time hunt. Like, yeah, setting up for whitetail, that's, that's good thinking, I reckon. Yeah, so... Whitetail have always been something that I'm interested in. There's a very small population of them in, in New Zealand in two locations. So mm. there's the South Island and there's Stewart Island. So I've always been intrigued by Stewart Island. My brother did it 20 odd years ago and, and they were somewhat successful there. My uncle shot one there 40 years ago or something. So I, I've always had a desire for that. So I figured that it's a good opportunity to get into the North American hunting by dipping the toe in the water with yep. the whitetail. Yeah. And then that has now sparked a bit of an interest in some of the other species there. So <laughs> You're gone. Elk have well and truly <laughs> been on the radar. And I think barren ground caribou for me, yep. I know I could hunt elk and mountain caribou, but the barren ground caribou and the fact that we potentially may not be able to hunt them because of the dwindling numbers in 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, but... That that is appealing in itself. There's always been something about caribou for me that they're cool. Stand out there. Yeah. I don't think they're overly challenging to hunt, but they're certainly a unique beast. So. And once again, I think it takes you to the place. It's a bit like where we are now. You know, if it wasn't for Samadhi, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't come to the Victorian High Country. So, it's a little bit like those guys. You know, no one else is going to go up there and take that adventure if it wasn't if they weren't there. Yeah. So. So and I guess that's something that we probably haven't touched on, and that. Hunters are generally driven by that the adventure behind oh, yeah. the hunt. So Massively. it's not always the hunt and a successful hunt that generates a great trip. Yeah, it's the company you keep in that and the people you meet and the places you go is unbelievable. So uh, well, it's like it's like today that you know we really well. There's no no doubt that I haven't looked like pulling you know putting an arrow on the string. You know, and I've honestly had with another half a day to go you know one of the best trips that I've had you know purely just from a learning side of things you know and just the sights and sounds some of the photos we've taken you know just the sunset and the, and the sunrise you know just absolutely beautiful country I didn't even know it was here you know, like I knew it was all down here but I didn't know it looked like it did you know it's, it's pretty it's pretty awesome to be able to just fly you know an hour and a half from, from my nearest airport to come down and experience this where you know I've, obviously I'm known to go over you know 10,000 miles on the other side of the world and, and try and experience the same thing. Yeah, and I guess Samba go under the radar a little bit as it is on, do, a, yeah. on a local scale, let alone on an international scale. So that's another thing that I'm quite passionate about is trying to promote Australia as a destination for people from overseas that want to yep. hunt. Um, yep. It's a good opportunity to get here and hunt public land do it yourself the victoria all you need is a game license there's no test associated with it it's yep. just a fee you can get a temporary game license if you you're sort of flying in flying out so there's opportunity there for people all over the world of yep. all walks of life it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money to do it so yeah and it's definitely forgotten about i mean i, I said to you there today like you know, I was talking to someone and, and they said, oh, what about public land? Where can I come and hunt? And I said, oh, the, you know, Australia's a bit hard. You know, you kind of need private access. Like, like, even I forget about it. And, you know, I'm talking to you two, three days prior too, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, 
a lot of people are going to probably try and want to protect it a little bit. There's a bucket load of ground here. It's never going to be overrun. Um, you know, it's something that I think, yeah, you know, probably a lot more people should experience, I reckon. Absolutely. So any opportunity to, to promote Australia, I'm pretty patriotic like that, so any opportunity to show the world that we've got something to offer, then I'll take that opportunity, absolutely. We obviously, you know, your trip's November, early November. Yeah. Yep. You'll get a chance to obviously share a few stories over there. Uh, any expectations or just a good time? Yeah, no, just a good time at the moment. So anything beyond that's going to be a bonus. So. What do you reckon the next time overseas will be uh, after that one? I've been pretty keen on a seeker, so I think seeker might be on the board. I've got a mate going to the Ukraine to hunt him, but I'm a little bit hesitant about that personally, <laughs> just considering parts of that country are in yeah, civil sure. war and all. So yeah. Bit nervous about that, so maybe New Zealand seeker or yep. um, North America is still very appealing. So there'll be something there that I'm keen for. No so doubt. chat well, to you a bit more about some elk <laughs> opportunities or yeah, we'll definitely do that. That's fine. Then, I mean, uh, you're you know you're obviously getting to the stage too. The boys getting older and that, so you're starting to be able to chuff off and do a bit more. So yeah. get a little bit more adventurous. And then after the Wild Deer Expo. I dragged my wife along to it. She wasn't keen to be there, but she managed to point out the grizzly bear and decided that she wants her own bear mounted in the lounge room. I can't so, believe she picked the bear. Like yeah. it just that cracks me up. Out of everything that was there, she yeah. managed to pick the bear. There were some good heads there too. <laughs> it was unreal. Yeah, so unreal. I'm getting a bit of pressure from her to tee up a, a bear hunt. So not sure whether grizzly it needs to be a grizzly but i'm thinking caliphate's black bear or something like that that's a little bit more affordable yeah, for me at the moment so definitely definitely i know someone down in new mexico can help you out with that so i'm sure that's the only, i haven't seen a black bear like a black bear down there they're all been caliphates yeah a whole lot of them yeah they're um they're unique they're something you it's very hard to put the two together actually when it's not black but it's um but they're no they're a cool animal very very boar like yeah. That sounds terrible because they, they call them well, boars. They are but, a boar, yeah. but uh, you know, very like when we're chasing pigs, they have very similar habits. Yeah. You know, so and to be honest, probably very similar to Samba too. It all comes back to you know what the feed and all that's doing. So I think you'll like them. I think yeah. you'd like any high country thing. Honestly, <laughs> it's one you haven't got a mule deer fetish yet. Yeah. Oh, that's like I said to you through the day today. So there's been a few. New Zealand and Australian hunters going out there doing that, and that certainly sparked my interest too. So yeah. it looks very much like. Us wondering around what we're doing today and yesterday. I mean, I was just, I think you got, I think you'd have that in the bag, but um, you might be able to show a few of them over there, aren't? Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. But, <laughs> um, I, one thing I wouldn't mind mentioning is the fact that I did achieve what I'd set out for. It took me five years or more to get there, and that was uh, archery high country samba so five years in the making and numerous fluffed opportunities and busted stalks and bad wind and you wrong, name it all wrong the range different, yeah wrong range <laughs> definitely all the different challenges that are you experience as as a bow hunter yep. so i managed to harvest a mature samba stag with the bow with the bow which yeah it took a long time to get there and yep little bit of a story behind it and something that even as a kid when I was archery shooting that was always something there even though I give up archery for a little while I managed to get back into it and certainly not the end of that for me either it's something that I want to 
continue. Not if, not if I could have anything to do with it. <laughs> Definitely want to continue on with it, and I'm pretty keen to start targeting some of the other species across Australia. But yeah, um, yeah. So go probably. back if you hadn't have if you had a shot that you know, and obviously I've heard the stories. You know, you obviously had a good opportunity to big stag, very very more or less straight up. How would it have changed if you had a shot that one back then to to where you are now? Oh, you I think? think I certainly would have taken it for granted. So any Samba deer taken with archery gear is an accomplishment. Yep. Regardless of how or where. So um, I think that experience, which to delve into it a little bit, was uh, a little bit of inexperience on my part. So I, when I originally hunted when I was younger, I, I didn't carry a rangefinder. I don't even know if they existed back then, but um, finger shooting, a compound bow with the old brass pin sights. I I had a limited distance of about 25 metres, but I pretty learned pretty quickly how to gauge everything under 25 metres. So I had that covered and I never even in my wildest imagination figured I could have ever shot beyond that. But second time around, the new reincarnation of the archery person <laughs> and, and I'm shooting regularly and I'm shooting out to 60, 70, 80 metres and getting a lot of confidence and but I was reasonably challenged by distance. So I still figured that I'd have to be in at that 20 metres range so that I could gauge to be comfortable. But um, I went away with a friend of mine, Nath. So we, we went up to Lake Dartmouth in the boat and were hunting around and being a little bit challenged because we're both carrying the archery gear around and we're seeing a few animals. And on this particular morning, we've we've got up high and we're overlooking a pretty big sunny face much similar to what we've been doing here seen a couple hinds sort of standing out there gaining a bit of sun and then down a bit lower back towards where we'd come from i seen a nice stag materialize down there so we quickly swung the camera gear onto it and the binos and we realized that he was definitely something that was a shooter at that point we were happy to harvest a hind so yeah our attention then swung around to him, but at the same time, a few other deer materialised. So there was about eight Samba in our side, like line of vision, um, and they were slowly feeding away from us. So, and they were on the opposite face. So we started contouring down. The wind was good. As we're contouring, the faces were slowly dropping elevation, but so were the deer. So we were kind of on alignment with each other that we're going to intersect it at the creek on a little spur dropping down onto it so we've got down there and we've got in a position that we thought was going to be the intercept point and Nath sort of sat back a little bit and I've dropped a little bit lower and I, I couldn't get through the creek without making noise and as I'm sitting there I'm a little bit exposed in an open patch and then sure enough the big stags materialized on the opposite side um, in between that, Nath had elected to stay back, but he gave me his rangefinder, and I'd never touched one of these things. So I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at the deer, and I'm thinking, uh, he's got to be 50 metres. And I didn't know, but I'm just in my head, I'm thinking 50, and then I've thrown up the rangefinder, and it said 40. So I'm going, oh, it's got a better go of the equipment, because that's what it's for. So I've dialed in the single pin to 40, composed myself a little bit because I had a little bit of a shake going on there and got it all got lined up and sitting there and I'm relaxed and it's all going through my head and then I 
slowly touched the release and sent the arrow only to see it just shave underneath his chest right in line to where i wanted to hit but just oh. shave under him and sitting back thinking what's going on there thinking i ranged him and my bow shooting good and everything's online and then nate sort of just dropped down the ridge a little bit and, and he's chatting to me he's like what happened and i said i don't know I, I ranged it at 40 and he said i thought it might have been 50 and he's grabbed his rangefinder off me and sure enough he's he's ranged a stump just six feet from the animal so that didn't even occur to me to not not range the animal i just was looking at the animal thinking yeah. I, i've got to range that but it turned out there was a couple of limbs overhanging and i'd been i'd arranged some leaves and stuff like that that were in front of the animal and it, i but i it was a valuable lesson i learned absolutely yeah. but hard lesson <laughs> yeah but probably a positive in it that, that if i had shot that sort of on my first real hunt after yeah. taking up archery again after 15 years away from it probably would have taken it for granted and yeah a little bit of uh inflated sense of <laughs> self i guess yeah, but yeah instead it was a bit of a reality check and yeah. back to the drawing board and the years passed by a little bit and i had a couple more near misses much similar on big stags again and never my enthusiasm for it never waned but um i definitely still rotated between bow and gun i yeah, wasn't 100 percent sure. in so then the last sort of nine months or so i've i've made a concerted effort to really stick to the bow and and that was my goal i figured that i'm getting photos of deer on a weekly basis and i'm getting some photos of some nice deer and a lot of the time i'm getting them not carrying a weapon but i think that's why i get a lot of those photos is because we spoke <laughs> about that in that you your you make different changes. decisions you when you've got a camera in your hand versus whether yep. you've got a bow or a rifle so you take some of the risks that you ordinarily wouldn't because you might be exposed or yeah there's a lot of different reasons there but I was getting in on there and I thought, well, if I'm doing it with this, why can't I do it with the bow? So I made that effort to get into it a bit more. And I was actually up here and it wasn't that far from here where I shot a small velvet stag with my bow only a month or so ago. And I was wrapped because that was actually, although I'd shot maybe a dozen sand behinds, I, I'd shot really no other deer, so or sand, or stag. So... For me, it was one of the first real chances I've got to hunt a stag yeah. with the bow, and I managed to get him, and he was good. He was just a young, malformed stag. He just yep. had a little stump one side and, and a small antler the other, and mm -hmm. um, that gave me a bit of a taste for it. So then a few weeks later, I, I decided to head up into some new country. I had a mate lined up that was supposed to be coming. He was coming, 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 and at the last minute he pulled out, so I thought, oh, bugger and I'm still going away and I still want to just do a bit of exploring so off I went up to much further than where we're at now a couple mm. couple more hours east and north so um got up there and it was very similar country uh snow plain country again yep. so I'm up there and I'm just just walking about and there's horses everywhere, just a lot of brumbies, just wild mm. brumbies. And, like a hell of a racket. Yeah, and a lot of those stallions are half mad, so yeah. they're putting yeah. dummy um, charges and things like that, and you're just standing there thinking, 
really hope this thing pulls up because <laughs> don't know what else I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So a couple of times I clapped my hands and yelled just to get him to stop. And But what I did pick up on was that although I'd seen some sign, I wasn't seeing fresh sign where yeah, the right. horses were. Yeah. So I just kept kept working around and getting into some gullies and contour around. And everywhere I went, there was horses. There's so many of them. It's ridiculous, really. I didn't realise there's that many <laughs> on some of these areas. So I managed to get into another area where I had fresh sign just cutting across the roads and there was some rubs on the side of the road and I thought oh here we go it's a little bit fresher and it was pretty much dark by then so I just pulled up set up camp and I thought I'll I'll get up in the morning and cut higher up because there was a few open gully heads I could see through the binos from down low so plan was for that I got up in the morning only to find pea soup fog (laughs) <laughs> thick as buggery you could see you love the fog six, yeah six or eight feet in front of me and I'm humming and ha and I'm thinking oh what am I supposed to do and all my plans were gone but I knew the weather was good and I was pretty confident it would clear there so I thought oh, I'll just keep doing I'll stick to the plan and see whether I could get above the fog mm. so I've started cutting up there and it was it was pretty disheartening it had cleared a little bit so I had maybe 20 meters visibility then I got up to the, the, the few open gullies that I'd seen and started just cutting across them relatively high. The The wind was still in catabatic conditions, so it was just still dropping down from the nighttime temperatures. It was dropping mm-hmm. down the hill even though I was higher up, but I was just waiting for that sun to poke yeah, out and then switch that switch around. Switch it up, yep, thermals. Yep, so I'd got to a position where I thought I better just prop up because I'd just walk through one or two gullies and I couldn't see down it so I'm potentially walking past here and I've just got onto the next burr and I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking oh I'll give it another 10 or 15 if it doesn't clear I'm just going to bail out I'll just go back down the hill and um just go try find somewhere out of the fog via mm. through the car so I'm sitting there and then as I'm sort of thinking that I could already start, see the sun starting to through just yeah just starting to see the shape of it through the fog it wasn't clearing it but you could see it and that's okay. a pretty good sign that it's going to start burning it off yeah. soon and within a couple minutes the visibility started to open up and i could see 70 80 meters and started sidling around a little bit more and then i got just up onto the next spur and it was quite tight but the the, the sun was well and truly out by then and the fog was still relatively low behind me and that that breeze was still dropping down the gully at this point but down maybe 100 and 100 meters 120 meters i caught movement down in this real tight little gully below me so i've, I've i'm or i was already propped there but i've just thrown the binos up and sure enough i could see the the back leg the rump and of this animal just moving through some blackberries and I thought oh I'm going to be a pretty good shot here he's he's down there and he looks like he's coming up but the Mm -hmm. wind was really risky at that point so I just was patient just sitting off him and just watching and then then he just sort of materialized through the fog there was still a little bit there I could make him out but he's materialized through it and as he has I've just seen his rack so seeing he was quite a nice stag because of the fog he was he was quite damp and the sun was sort of glistening off him yeah, so he was nice. almost a shiny little beacon down yeah. there so it's hard to compose yourself when you're looking <laughs> at this and at this stage he's he's maybe 90 or 80 meters um 
the win was still on my mind, so I was reluctant to drop off the spur I was on because the mm. minute I did, he was just slightly on the other side. But the minute I did, it was just going to definitely push yeah. my scent down to him where at the moment I was hoping it was just peeling back thing, yeah. behind me into the, gu- the little gully behind me. And um, he's, he's kept on feeding. It's taken 10 minutes. He's gone about 10 metres or something. <laughs> and, and then... I started to feel the wind start to shift around and it was coming across me a little bit. And then within five minutes, it was now starting to come back up. The fog yep. was completely cleared. The sun was well and truly out. And then that breeze was coming up into my face. So the stag was still maybe 60, 60 metres away down the gully, still feeding his way up, but just really, really slow, like excruciatingly slow. <laughs> Painful. I don't have the greatest patience at the best of time, but this was challenging. But <laughs> I knew that if I was to have a shot at him with him coming almost front on up the gully, just slightly quartering off, but I was still in his peripheral. So I needed to get behind. There was just a little stand of tussocks and a little bit of blackberries, and I really needed to get that to yep. that. But that was about uh, four or five metres down an open little face with him. Mm-hmm pretty well exposed down there but he sort of propped and he was doing must have hit a bit of nice feed because he started doing just these little figure eights there just feeding around in little circles and things like that so every time he turned his back i just slid down on my bum i'd already dropped my pack off up where i was so it was just me and the bow and being mindful of him i, I was reluctant to move too far so i was mm. just doing little little moves and Finally got to the little shrub where I was comfortable I'd be able to draw without him seeing me and then the idea was if he kept going on the line I was just going to take a little sidestep and as he presented I was just going to whack him and he's kept on coming up and like like textbook I'm sitting there and can't see him anymore but he was right on the line but while he was coming up I was just learning from that lesson earlier I was um, ranging every tree in that gully, mm-hmm. I knew exactly what distance it was. That was never going to be again. So yep. if he changed angle or if he went anywhere, I knew whether it was... <laughs> well, obviously, it was all over 30 because I'm running my Swarovski bino, so they only go down to 30. But I was comfortable. I could just whack him and at under 30, no worries, even just with this, the single pin. So, But beyond 30, yeah, absolutely. I ranged everything right yep. up to 50 metres in all directions. So... Had a pretty good gauge of that, but it never really mattered in the end because he just kept the same line. And in my head, I'm thinking, like, he's under 25. He's probably closer to 20. Yep. He might have even been under 20. I'm not sure, but I just, from behind the tree, I just drew and sort of sidestepped a little bit. He was still somewhat behind the tree. Then I seen his head come out. And then he sort of paused while I'm at full draw. And then I seen his chest come out. And then he took one more step. And as his front leg was pointing forward, I just send it. But the whole time I'm thinking there, I'm thinking, how could you miss this thing? He's he's like a dinosaur walking up there. Yeah. It's just a huge bodied animal. But I've been asked if I had the shakes up or not. And I can't even answer it because yep. I was just in just in the moment. And I just had no idea what was going on other than the fact that my pin was right on that sweet little pocket (laughs) while his front leg was forward. So I touched the release and just watched those 
fletches to sail through the air and it just hit right yeah. in that spot where I wanted. And as it as it's hit, he's just reared and turned on the spot and then just sort of took off downhill. But from where I was sitting, he only went 20, 30 metres oh, tops nice. and piled over where I could see him. So yeah. in a pile of blackberries Jeez, there. To be able to do that, to be able to watch hit your first stag and watch it fall over as well, that's... Yeah, you can't ask for much more than a bow hunter for that. Nah, so I'm sitting there, I've got the shakes going on, and, and all I <laughs> can they, see so is they did one, hit you. <laughs> yeah, one antler poking up out of there, and give him a bit of time because I'm mindful that they can get up from that and bit of an adrenaline run or yep. or run and just disappear. So yeah, just sat there and just thinking to myself and talking to myself about it all. I give a bit of a fist pump and a yeah boy or something like that. I don't even remember what it was now, but. <laughs> Definitely yelled out a little bit, so if he was still half kicking, I might have sent him off again. But, yeah. So then I just walked down to where he was. He, yeah, he was done and dusted. It was just a almost a textbook hard yeah. shot, and and that was it for him. So. How long did yeah, take was, it? How long did it take you to soak it in? Uh, yeah, it was a little while. I just sat there for a little while, just yeah. just having a look over him and taking it all in, and then yeah, then I just went down the path of. Photos, so making sure I had some good photos, mm. seen it or something that I'd put more effort into hunting than any other thing. Yeah. And then, yeah, then just started the hard work then begun, so. So did you feel that you wanted, like obviously when everything settled down, did it fuel the fire or was it sort of more of a, a completion? Nah, I wouldn't say it's complete. It's just fueled the fire a yep. bit more now, so it's definitely not done. It just made me more enthusiastic about it so yep. and definitely definitely set off a flame for me to start targeting the other species too yeah, so cool. it's something that i was never that passionate about i just yeah. thought oh yeah i'd give the half-hearted attempt at the hog deer season hog deer season every year and there's some local fallow deer every now and then that i just but never specifically targeting them yeah yeah, now, now I definitely have, and I definitely want to do it all with a bow. So for sure, yeah, should be good. Should be good. I look forward to seeing you on a few adventures up north. Then yeah, no, that, that'd be good. So <laughs> um, we'll get a few organised. We'll get a few organised. Well, mate, you obviously, um, you know, just obviously, I've read a bit and that, but you've got a lot of content out there. Where where's the best place? I know you you do a bit of. Um, bit of editorial work and that as well but where can we sort of catch up on um, not only social media but any kind of magazine forms and that as well yeah so I do a lot of writing for Dan Burke and Wild, Wild Deer Mag so um, he's got a couple of stories sitting there at the moment one of them's that archery stag so nice. uh, yeah I generally any of my written work will be through that um, obviously I've got my Instagram account which is Rogers Josh and and then I've also got a YouTube channel set up that it's only just starting it's only yep. early days that's Grumpy Boars Outdoors so nice. don't ask me where the name come from that's it just right. popped into my head one day and I figured it'll work even though I'm not a big hunter so that's right. you never know. Know, maybe I resonate a never little bit know. with it yeah. I feel a little bit like that gnash my teeth every now and then and oh, that's funny yeah and with um, you've obviously been writing for for Wild Deer for some time. I mean, like that's that's a certainly a quality mag, especially for Samba. Like it's, I mean, the content in the Wild Deer mag is is pretty exceptional uh, for anyone that's interested in deer hunting. How long have you been sort of putting stuff in there? And you, you've obviously known Dan for some time. 
Yeah, it's been a little while, so probably had stories in there from almost the early days of the mag, so oh, that'd be... I, I it's think back it's, now. it's over 10 years. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an older mag now. Yeah, it's been been a little while there. Beyond that, like when I was a kid, that archery samber I shot when I was 15, I, I put a little story into the ADA magazine yep. at that point, but I didn't know what I was writing then. I wasn't yep. even a, a good English student, so I probably didn't even make sense what I wrote. But yeah, yeah it still went in there. Still pretty proud of that for the time and the equipment I was using. Yep. And don't think too many people had shot samber in no, the early 90s so they're hardly known of yeah not a huge thing even with the bow now I mean it's, it's growing but yeah. but yeah I mean the, the mags are really because I know you've tested some gear in that for it too yeah um, that's really good gear and it's probably very you know relative to to what we've done this weekend getting getting back or going to New Zealand and those kind of things so um, yeah I suggest anyone getting out there and you know probably grabbing a copy of that if and uh, obviously get to see your mug in there as well uh, yeah, I try to avoid putting my own <laughs> face in there. You might see a picture from the back, or if, it, if there is an animal there, I'm clearly in the picture. Are they those photos that. that Billy sneaks up behind yeah, you? Yeah, generally any pictures of me is Bill snapping sneaky pictures from yeah. behind. Or something. He acts as if he's stuffed getting up the hill, but he's really <laughs> just taking photos. Yeah. I hope you can pick up his little cheeky grin that he's got going over there. But, <laughs> but uh, well, Josh, mate, I can't thank you enough for... Um, Firstly, obviously, invite me down to to experience what you've got down here and show me all your secret spots and and obviously you know jump on the podcast. I know it's not easy, mate. So it um, certainly puts everyone out of their comfort zone, mate. So I do appreciate your time and um, it's been a big day today. So we're we're starting to get doughy. Yeah, so it's a, it's been a challenge actually talking into this mic, and telling <laughs> stories that I've already told you throughout the day, but took certainly taken me out of my comfort zone but it's been more than a pleasure having you down here i've been wrapped it's always a bit uncertain when you invite someone you've never met before just via a few messages but yeah no pretty confident you're going to be a good guy and have a trip and we've had an opportunity to test out a bit of gear i've been looking at a bit of yours yeah it's been that's what it's another thing you know another flip side it's just you know little things that we all use and you know we've been talking boots packs you know, I, I slept in a hammock for the first time last night. I've I never had that opportunity, and I think we threw we threw your sleeping pad in that you'd never tried, and yeah. I slept like a a daisy, and Josh didn't sleep at all, so <laughs> <laughs> that's a good deal. Yeah, so I was in my bivy again, but the bivy's good; it serves a purpose. But yeah, it's pretty important to make sure you set it up on flat ground. If yeah. not, you'd end up like me and pretty much in the fetal position sleeping the night out so. <laughs> it's cold too <laughs> yeah. well we're walking on ice at three o'clock this afternoon it was still frozen on some of the tracks so it it's freaking cold in spots so yeah no it's been good it's been a good trip seen yeah, some definitely. good animals and still we're not done yet so we'll no, see mate. In the morning. we'll see what comes up in the morning but it's been a hell of a trip but um I don't think it's going to be the last time we're down here mate so no, I, I think you've you created something that I probably shouldn't be starting but anyway but yeah. uh, no, mate, thank you once again. And um, yeah, appreciate the intel, mate. There's a load of info there. And, and I, I suggest anybody that's keen to hit Samba or is having trouble with the Samba, is uh, flick Josh a message, mate. They'll, they'll definitely help you out. So Yeah, and no, I'm more than happy to help anyone out with it. So shoot me a message and I'll, I'll always reply. So yeah, thanks thanks for having me on. Ah, good on you, man. Thank Cheers, you. Halsey. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for the beers, thanks, mate. Bill. You've done well. Keeping that fire alight. <laughs> Oh, jeez, we got three words out of him. Oh, oh Bill, Billy Browntree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome.
Yeah. All right. Good on you, boys. Let's have a good little go to bed. Cool. Cheers, mate. Hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Hunting Camp Down in the Podcast. Today's episode was proudly brought to you by Hoyt Bow Hunting, Arrowhead Magazine, and Abbey Archery. That's all for me this week. All the best in the hills, and look forward to you joining me on the next episode of the Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.